once you go underneath the pattern, you're going to understand, you're going to get to know yourself basically and see each trauma event where you got stunted and these parts developed and are really running your life in many ways. Your healthy adult is really in many cases in such uh, acute trauma as mine. I wasn't running my life. My child parts, I've identified 12, were running my life. And since I've gotten to reparent them and understand them and give them love and attention that they didn't get from their other parents, their real parents, it's, it's a real game changer. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is author Ariel Spring. Ariel is a living example of a phoenix rising. She began her life in an idyllic setting surrounded by a loving parent and a sibling. She started to soar as a classical pianist when she was mentored by a renowned piano teacher who believed she would one day become a concert pianist. However, her life took a sudden turn in her sophomore year of high school. She experienced a succession of traumas, two of which were sexual assault. And then she got word her piano teacher had suddenly passed away. She was left with guilt, shame, isolation and heartbreak, but kept it hidden inside, which resulted in her being stricken with PTSD. Left untreated, she went in a downward spiral lasting over two decades. Her book, When Birds Sing, documents her journey from trauma to triumph and relates how she discovered a power greater than herself, which taught her to see and feel again through the process of reclaiming each precious, broken piece of herself. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. A big thank you to our sponsors by Optimizers, Paleo Valley, and Organifi. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products they produce. And now here is Paul talking with Ariel about Silent Torment, Healing Complex PTSD. Hello, everybody. Before we get into the podcast today, I have a very special life-transforming offer. I have created a three-day Czech Life Process Alchemy workshop that is perfect for Living 4D subscribers and listeners. I have broken up the three-day workshop to enhance your learning experience. My upcoming Czech Life Process Alchemy workshop will be conducted over the span of several weeks so that you don't have to do too much training at once and you have time to integrate what you learn between training sessions. I will offer day one on June 30th, the second day of training, July 14th, and to conclude the three days of training, we will meet on July 29th where I'm offering a powerful day of practicing Czech life process alchemy with me to facilitate your own healing, spiritual growth, and to integrate all that was taught in the previous two days of training. Day three of the workshop combines an on-learning option with the option to attend live at our beautiful home in the mountains of Fallbrook, California. Check Life Process Alchemy is a structured system to help not just the coach, trainer, therapist, or doctor, but to help anyone who is genuinely interested in their own healing. Check Life Process Alchemy is a very powerful system for personal, professional, and spiritual growth and helps anyone identify the actual cause of their own physical, emotional, or mental symptoms or any patient or client's symptoms. 
After many years of studying alchemy and different systems of alchemy, I found that there were too many contradictions between the systems of alchemy to be a reliable means of addressing the spectrum of physical, emotional, mental, relationship, social, or spiritual challenges effectively. I took it upon myself to spend countless hours researching, studying, practicing, and investigating how to create an integrated system of alchemy that worked effectively and consistently. By integrating Carl Jung's and Rudolf Steiner's concepts of alchemy with classical alchemy concepts, I was finally able to create a system that includes the key physiological and psychological control systems that directly affect the human body, emotions, mind, and soul. I have now tested my Czech Life Process Alchemy system for many years and have taught it privately to therapists and with my life coaching clients, and it produces accurate results every time. A few years ago, I was the keynote speaker for the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine's 30-year anniversary and offered a two-day Czech Life Process Alchemy workshop to seasoned Oriental medical doctors, acupuncturists, students of Oriental medicine, and a variety of other healthcare professionals. It was very well received, and the most common comment I got was, why have I been studying and practicing all these years and nobody has ever taught us how to get to the actual cause of people's problems like this? Not only did the students in my workshop learn a lot of very practical approaches to their patient work, they learned a lot about themselves, which was quite enlightening for them, and I'm sure it will be for each of you too. This workshop will help you to understand how spirit creates and embodies itself through our mind, elemental forces, our physiology, regulatory systems, emotions, and the circumstances of our life. You will learn how to identify the actual causes of psychophysical imbalances and how to balance, heal, and grow yourself spiritually. You will learn how to guide yourself, life coaching clients, or patients to the Czech Life Process Alchemy process and the stages of healing that I teach. Practicing Czech Life Process Alchemy will facilitate conscious awakening and offer you greater freedom in life in a simple but dynamic format. You will learn a structured system of self or patient assessment, progression, awareness training, and behavioral change that is highly complementary to other holistic coaching therapies and training techniques and is ideal for all Czech trained professionals. Czech Life Process Alchemy uses key principles of alchemy, physiology, Jungian depth psychology, the four functions of consciousness, and the assessment of an individual's life story. Czech Life Process Alchemy shows you how to resolve root causes of psychophysical challenges and facilitate anyone's ability to accomplish their dreams or goals for health, abundance, and life. As I mentioned earlier, the training will be conducted over three separate days online with the option to join me in person for the practice and integration training on day three. Within the first two days of online training, June 30th and July 14th, I will give you simple practical homework exercises to orient you to the practice of Czech Life Process Alchemy in your daily life or practice it with your clients and patients. Day 3, July 29th, you can choose to come to do the integration and practice training live or attend online. During Day 3, I will draw from students in class to demonstrate how to use your Czech Life Process Alchemy training and the principles of Czech Life Process Alchemy to solve real health, mental, emotional, or life challenges. Due to the personal, social, and cultural issues we're all facing in the world today, I felt compelled to offer each of you this opportunity to learn very powerful healing, stress reduction, and spiritual growth methods that really work. I feel this is important training, so I'm offering you the three-day training event for the same price 
I normally charge for my two-day workshops. I have created 17 three- to four-minute videos to introduce you to the concepts of Czech Life Process Alchemy so you can see if it resonates with your soul and you'd like to attend. They will be released progressively as the workshop approaches, and you can see each of them that have been released at the workshop sign-up page or follow me on my Instagram channel at paul.check. Remember that C-H-E-K, at paul.check. The introductory videos are in the Reels section. To register for my upcoming Czech Life Process Alchemy workshop, go to mailchi.mp forward slash paulcheck forward slash clpa. That's mailchi.mp forward slash paulchek forward slash clpa. Once again, that's mailchi.mp forward slash Paul, C-H-E-K, forward slash C-L-P-A. I'm super excited to have as many of you in this training as possible, and also super excited to have as many of you here live at our Rainbow House as possible, so we can share a lot of amazing insights and ahas and get clear together and go off into the world and do our best to make it a better place for everybody. Hello, everybody. I'm excited to share an important podcast with you. The title today is Silent Torment, Healing Complex PTSD. And our guest today is Ariel Spring, author of When Birds Sing, My Journey from Trauma to Triumph, which is a very important book. I read through it and I wanted to share Ariel with you today for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of the events of her life are quite common to a lot of our lives, but many people don't realize what's happening inside of them. And they end up having all sorts of unusual symptoms and end up going to doctors and getting multiple diagnoses and then get put on all sorts of drugs. But they rarely ever realize what's really going on because the medical system keeps taking a symptomatic approach and not getting to the roots of the real issue. So having read Ariel's book and seeing the story of her life, I found it very interesting and important. So I wanted to share Ariel with you today, her journey, and give you a sample of what's in her book by hearing about it directly from her. So Ariel, welcome to Living 4D. I'm excited to share your journey with everyone today. It's quite a story for sure. Thank you, Paul. I'm very honored and I'm happy to be here with you today. Why don't you go ahead and show the book on the video just so the people watching the video can see it. So there you go. You can see if you're looking for the book, that's what it looks like. And I, what I loved about Ariel's journey and why I wanted to podcast with her is because her, real, her story is really about her figuring this out herself and ultimately taking it into her own hands and going through the process of healing herself. And I really think that due to the very sad state of the medical system, that that's really about where we're at right now, unless you want to just become a slave to addictive medical drugs and toxicity and get a lot of poor quality treatment, then it's really about saying, how do I take advantage of this visit or visits from the pain teacher and 
learn what the gifts are hiding inside the trauma so I can heal it and become a guide for others. And I think Ariel has really done that. She's not only become a guide, but she became a professional life coach and has a lot of wisdom and experience to share. So I'm going to do my best today to pull the wise woman out of Ariel and see what we can all learn from her story. So Ariel, could you begin by telling us about, you know, your story, because it's one of multiple compounding and challenging life situations that ultimately led to you realizing that you had what is called complex PTSD. Um, so maybe just one, maybe you could start by telling us what the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD is. So everybody knows what that is. And then tell us what happened and take your time. I know that's a big question. So feel free to just give us sort of the, you know, the timeline and the experiences that you went through and, and whatever you want to share. Thank you, Paul. Complex PTSD would just mean one or more traumas. And they, if they happen early in childhood, that uh, arrests your childhood development. And CPTSD, as I will refer to it for the rest of the podcast, um, comes with its own host of symptoms, which exacerbates your already PTSD, which happens after a frightening or terrifying or traumatic event such as sexual assault, um, you know, I'm going to be talking specifically today about sexual assault and um, betrayal, abandonment. And so um, that also has a whole host of symptoms, which I will be revealing later in the podcast. So you'll be able to see, um, you know, what they all are. Yes. And also, of course, PTSD, as many people associate with, comes from head traumas and you know, I've dealt with many, many cases of PTSD in combat of athletes, motocross racers, ex-gamers. Um, I myself had uh, six significant concussions, which gave me PTSD six times over. And so, uh, and many of the, that's another thing. I felt so much empathy for you because, you know, my childhood was riddled with trauma. And so, as I was reading your story, it was like I was reading some of my own story, you know, take years and just throw in six concussions and you, me and you were like in a three-legged walk. <laughs> so um, I'd love to hear your story and I'd love the audience to hear it too. So please share. I'm excited to get into your journey. Thank you. I was born six and a half years after my brother and uh, my mom says, as she tells the story, that she had to convince my father to have another child because she really, really wanted a little girl. I grew up with two loving parents and an older brother in a small idyllic town where I played outside with my friends and rode my bike clear across town to my piano lessons. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the head trauma because I'm I, that's what happened to me too. Um, my, firstly though, my mom uh, thought it would be a good idea for me to sleep with her while my dad worked nights. 
And she did this for many years, probably from the ages of four to 11. And that created a very unhealthy attachment for me. And then when I was eight, she went back to work and uh, I felt betrayed and abandoned. And from that point on, my mother never had time for me. She was always very critical of me and she seemed pretty much angry with me every day of my life. Ironically, that same year, I fell down a 30-foot embankment and was knocked unconscious and I fractured a vertebrae in my neck. And also ironically, I was in the emergency room 13 times by the time I was 11. Geez, that's a lot. I see this now that I was having these accidents to gain my mother's attention. So I had many near concussions. Uh, they never diagnosed me with a concussion, but I had a lot of head trauma. Um, then when I took uh, a job during high school uh, at a skincare consultant's home, she had a skincare studio in her home. She had to go into the hospital for surgery, and she left me in charge. Well, her husband sexually assaulted me in the living room when I was just very, you know, again, I was from a small town. I was quite naive, even though I was 16. And I handled that assault with the utmost maturity. However, when I went home to tell my mother, I said, please don't tell my dad. I didn't want to discuss it with him. Well, she promptly told my dad. And he then promptly gathered us into the car and we drove up there. He made us wait in the car. He had a talk with this man, and the man convinced him that he would never come in the house again while I was there. So my parents forced me to go back into the environment the very next day. That is, you know, in researching my book, I was able to see that that was the point where I began to question my ability to make good decisions. Because I made this amazing decision and they overrode it. And so I then must have thought I didn't know how to make good decisions. You must have been full of adrenaline having to go back into that environment so quickly. You know, that's really exactly what happened. I was in a state of panic for two solid weeks. I was telling my best girlfriend on the phone in the studio what had happened, and I heard a click on the line. He had promised he would be on the screened-in porch. Well, my imagination and my adrenaline took that, that he was going to kill me. Mm. So I was very, um, like you said, full of anxiety at that point. So what happened next, Paul, is... Um, in that same year, I accepted a date with a boy from the adjoining neighborhood. And uh, instead of taking me on a date, he picked up two other guys, drove out on a dirt road, and I was gang raped. And um, after doing the, uh, I cloaked myself in shame from that moment forward because I blamed myself because A, I didn't fight and B, I didn't say no. 
Now, in researching my book again, I found out that this guy sodomized a 13-year-old girl with an accomplice a few years later and got sent to prison. He basically spent his whole life in and out of jail with domestic violence, offenses, sexual assaults, drug convictions, and the like, and he died fairly early. So um, my life was forever changed after that day. I actually found each boy outside of their class the next day and told them how sorry I was for what wow. had happened. That's a, that, that's sort of a sign of inner confusion, isn't it? I, I had taken on the shame. You know, I, I took it to the extreme, but I had taken on all their shame, you know, and um, so, you know, I, I, I didn't realize at that point that I was already suffering from PTSD to my early childhood accidents mm -hmm. and, and uh, also um, having a very narcissistic and demanding, controlling mother and a subjugated father, which I'll get into later. So at 18, I thought it would, I barely graduated. Yeah, well, it's under a lot of stress. Yeah, I was disassociated for the next two years. I, but I had the ability to delegate my homework. So <laughs> really how I graduated, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't realize I had these attributes at the time, though. <laughs> and so I graduated high school, but I was desperate in looking in at my story as I wrote my book, Paul, to launch myself into the world because my parents really weren't there. They were both working. They were having their own issues at the time, which, you know, I found out about later. And so I got married, and three weeks into the marriage, I found out that he was having an affair with my aunt. Oh, wow. Trouble comes thick in your life, honey. <laughs> This, this summarization is going to sound a little bit like a soap opera, everyone, but this really was my life. So, Well, it, 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 the reason I wanted to have you share it is because there's a lot. You know, look, I've been a therapist for 39 years. You, you're by no means alone. <laughs> I, I want you to know, just to I give you a know. little, you know, by now I'm sure you do, but believe me. Uh, just the number of patients I've had that were raped by Catholic pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers and uh, the Catholic church alone has put countless young children in the same boat that you're in and worse. So uh, that's why I think this is an important conversation because there's, there's a lot more of this going on right this minute than people realize. Yes. So I thought it was a good idea to get married again at 19. But this was another attempt to launch myself into the world. But by this time, I had a really good job. And a couple years into it, um, he wanted nothing to do with me. So um, I got very angry. And again, I can see this was the PTSD working on me silently. 
I didn't realize I was losing my voice and I had put a lot into the relationship financially, even though he was an engineer. Um, he had been married before, so he had gotten in debt. I got him out of debt, all this wonderful stuff, and I walked away with absolutely nothing. So um, to continue the summary, I then had to, my mind was eroding. I had a, a very stressful job at General Motors, so I asked for a transfer. I got a nightmare of a boss, so I just quit. And I lost, you know, my seniority, everything. And I could see that my life was eroding. And the only thing I could think to do was to go to the two people that maybe might be able to help me, my parents. So I asked them to move if I could move in. And they gave me a set of guidelines that I needed to follow, like get a job. I did that immediately. However, my mom was very fastidious and meticulous about her house. And I, it was Christmas. I was making cranberry relish and I got some water on the mirror. They, they actually had a mirror above their kitchen sink. And so um, my mother started screaming at me and I got my voice and I said, you know what? I'm going to call my brother and tell him how you are treating me here. So I picked up the phone and she grabbed the phone and there was a tug of war. She then called in my dad and he threw me to the floor and sat on me. Hence, I got hysterical, screaming, get off, get off. And when he released me, I ran into my room and slammed the door. They called the police and said that I was destroying their home and the police should come and get me. This, again, was midwinter. They threw all my things in the driveway. The police came. They put me in the squad car and they said, where do you want to go? Well, I was homeless. And at that point, I, I was able to get a place on a friend's couch, a co-worker's couch, because she didn't have a bedroom for me. And I developed an eating disorder because of this traumatic, traumatic event with my parents. I just, it's still very unbelievable to me. But I would binge and use enemas to um, purge my system after I would binge. And I was actually addicted to enemas for like 25 years. How old are you at this point? At this point, I was like uh, 26. Yeah, you're still a young, budding adult. And you haven't really had a chance to sink any roots. You know, you, you're dealing with uh, an attachment disorder. I'm sure you're familiar with attachment theory, right? So you never really developed yes. a secure attachment. I most definitely did not. My attachment, as I've learned in the last three years, was that I was I, I wasn't reflected my identity by my mother because she was narcissistic. So I was what I call in her skin. I didn't have my own identity. I had her identity. So I was searching for my identity. So at that point in my search for my identity, 
And I was primed for this at this point with the incredible betrayal of my parents to not to throw me out like that and not be willing to talk with me. And, you know, it, it was just absurd. Um, that's when I met my abusive ex. And three weeks into the relationship, uh, he got mad at me because I was making too much noise in the kitchen and he was trying to sleep. Uh, we were on different work schedules. And so he threw me down and punched me in the face and strangled me. Oh, my God. Yeah, three weeks into it, you know, we got involved very quickly, uh, as many do. So I left, and many of you listening are going to recognize this story. He called me, he coerced me to come back. I went back. We went to a huge party in, in those first two years, and he got jealous at the party. And when he got me home, he beat me till I was unrecognizable in my face. And I left him again. I, I wasn't living with him. Uh, so I left him. I went back to my apartment. And a few weeks later, he called. Going to recognize the story again. And this time he said, I've got an amazing opportunity. My brother wants to give me a job in the design district in a majorly big city. I was in a small town. And he said, marry me and move with me. And so I said yes. And so I moved away from my hometown, my family, who had betrayed me anyway, I still had a lot of resilience and vivaciousness. I got a good job the first day I was there. His job didn't come through with his brother. I don't know what happened there. I was never privy to that. And when that didn't happen, he his abuse escalated to horrible verbal abuse. He would call me these three names that I probably shouldn't say on the podcast daily. And he would um, emotionally abuse me in that he would take the vehicle and make me walk through a red light district to get the bus to get to my job. And that, he would also take my paycheck. So that's how things were going at this point. Are you familiar with Stockholm syndrome? Uh, yes. It almost feels to me like you've sort of ended up in a bit of a Stockholm syndrome situation. You know, most people consciously would not think it would be rational to marry someone that beat your face till it was not recognizable. Right. But when you've had this much problems and traumas leading up to it, it sounds to me like you're getting conditioned to the point where you're so isolated from your connection to your parents and your developmental family that you're only able to associate with the people that are making connection with you. And since so much of it is violent, it's almost as though you don't really know any other way to connect to somebody. That's a great point. Stockholm syndrome is basically without a long explanation. When someone gets captured, let's say kidnapped, and then they get tortured and abused, 
then what happens if the cops come to arrest them, the, the captors, they now have empathy for the people that have been torturing and, and capturing them because they've kind of fell into almost like a cult-like connection with these people. And so paradoxically, they, they now want to protect the very people that were hurting them. So when I'm listening to your story, it just sort of makes me think, wow, she's, she was suffering from some variation of Stockholm syndrome. Yes. I, I think that's a great point. Even though I would have bursts, you know, in this four-year period of abuse, you know, I tried to run him over once. I, I threw him <laughs> out. <laughs> I threw him out. And, you know, after he bit holes in the sides of my nose because he was jealous, again, jealous, that's when um, a coworker, a resident from the hospital I worked at, came to my door and and uh, the abuser said, oh, she doesn't feel well. She can't come to the door. Many of you are familiar. And the co-worker said, I'm not leaving till I see Ariel. You bring her here to the door. I had missed three days of this amazing job. I got a second job that was even better than the first job. And I went to the door and he said, he took one look at my face and said, oh my gosh, you know, what has he done to you? He said, it's not too late. Come to work tomorrow. You know, I'll explain and and you won't lose your job. And that was the beginning of him mentoring me. And through that mentorship, just one person believing in me and supporting me, who, you know, I only knew as a coworker, I was able to write my safe exit plan and execute that plan. I paid for my divorce. I found housing that was furnished because I knew it wouldn't be safe to get a moving van and take all the furniture that happened to belong to me. After four years, I left him. And I thought that leaving, because unbeknownst to me, I didn't know I had PTSD. And I'm sure I had complex PTSD as well at that time. But I had no idea of that. I thought that a six-month moratorium on dating would do the trick. (laughs) Well, that's a good start. (laughs) Yeah. And I I did that. I I committed to that, and I did it. And then I got in a three-year relationship with a very handsome guy. And uh, the only issue there was... It seemed like he was having an affair with his best friend who happened to be a guy. Uh, And so that was a betrayal and I ended up leaving him. So, but at the same time, as all this is going on relationally, you know, my, my life was eroding because the great job that I had, again, it was a similar situation where I asked for a transfer because I couldn't handle the pressure anymore. I got a lighter job and then I fudged my timesheet like, you know, what was I thinking? And I was fired on the spot. So now I was jobless. My resilience showed up again. I I landed an amazing job at a law firm in downtown in this big city. But I will say that even though I had this superb resiliency, which I really couldn't see until I wrote my book, 
it would take 10 more years of a downward spiral of toxic relationships, moving from place to place, getting an STD, and even becoming homeless, although I was fortunate to be able to live in my car, before I would realize that I was injured and needed help. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to be able to share this podcast with you. And I wanted to take a moment to tell you about one of my secret methods for keeping me vital and strong. And that's Organifi's Balanced Probiotic Formula in Capsules. Organifi Balanced Capsules gives your gut system the support it needs to help you feel better in many ways. I suspect by now you've seen one of the many excellent documentaries showing how essential the health of our microbiome is and how consuming the right probiotic bacteria can really help your body, emotions, and mind in many ways. Each dose of Organifi Balanced Capsules includes five of the most important probiotic bacteria for a healthy body, and Organifi guarantees 20 billion colony-forming units of probiotic bacteria per serving, which ensures that a significant amount of health-giving bacteria will make it through your stomach into your small intestine and colon where they can do their magic. Organifi's Balanced Formula supports GI health, supports you in having a healthy digestive system, probiotic replenishment, promotes gut flora diversity, supports healthy gut flora, maintains healthy gut balance, reduces bloating and gas and supports you in having regular bowel movements, which improves detoxification, helps you reduce or eliminate abdominal discomfort, improves digestion and absorption, supports your immune system and gives it the boost you need for a healthy immune response. To get your 20% L4D discount on Organifi Balance Formula and Capsules and support your health and vitality each day, go to O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash check 20. That's Organifi.com forward slash check 20. For your Living 4D discount on checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. As an added bonus, you can use your check 20 discount code on all purchases and subscriptions and get 20% off. Feel free to visit the website for more technical information on the ingredients in Organifi Balance. Enjoy. That's a pretty intense first, what, 36 years of your life? Yeah, uh, not even that many yet. Yeah, like 32. It's one thought that came to my mind there is, is um, you know, with a long string of, of abusive problems with men, be it boyfriends or husbands, I've had a number of clients over the years that were women that went through these types of situations, but they got so frustrated and disappointed with men that they ultimately became lesbians because they wanted to find somebody that could love them affectionately and and have some emotional connection to them. So as you were talking, I was like, I wonder if she's going to end up becoming a lesbian because of this, because (laughs) I've seen that happen multiple times, probably at least a dozen times in my career just with patients that work with me. And so it gives you a lot of empathy. You can really see how it's like a snowball starting to roll from the early years. Yes. And you, you know, the trauma and the disconnection, the derealization, and and it's almost like someone's in a state of a low level of shock, trying to navigate the world where you need to be fully awake just because of the challenges of life for anybody. But when someone's kind of 
you know, also every time this happens, you develop a level of not only insecurity within yourself, but with yourself. Yes. And then you start to develop a level of insecurity in relationships. And the problem is, is when, when a person gets far enough down that road, they actually start projecting what they're afraid of into the environment without realizing that that's causing you to attract it to you. Yes. It's sort of a really wild thing that I've been through in therapy with a lot of people. And I'm fortunate in my life that, and you know, my sisters both, you know, we lived in a pretty rough family. And one of the things I was thinking while you were telling the story of those guys that gang raped you, I'm like, wow, the next day, what would have happened if that was either of my sisters is they would have showed up at school with a shotgun and killed one of those guys. There would have been no hesitation whatsoever. I come from a big farm and my sisters are badass, man. They would have, they would have cleaned house. They probably would have gone together. <laughs> my badass had a child part and been, it was probably coming onto the scene somewhere near there, but it, it wasn't on yet, and I was just such a sweetheart, you know, that I just, I took everything on. I think also because of the attachment with my mother that I was already conditioned to take on her emotional needs. Right. So I took their emotional needs on. Yes. They needed to be exonerated, so... I did that. That's called codependent, you know. Yeah, and, and that was one of the things that was a risk by sleeping in your mother's bed too long. You know, there's a lot of controversy in the literature and amongst so-called experts about how long kids should sleep in their bed. And I think currently what's going on is, is a backlash that's been going on for years. Now you've got kids being segregated sometimes as early as, you know, the very beginning. I mean, right out of the womb, they're put into a crib and bottle fed and, and you've got sort of this BF Skinner behavioralist type approach, raising kids like animals. But, you know, because we really study Steiner's teachings in the Waldorf system and Steiner was extremely skilled at, at the, and knowledgeable about how children grow and develop for us. We, we made our own decision just to let the kids sleep with Angie until they wanted their own bed, or we felt that it was just time to put them in their own bed. But uh, Mana, I think around four, wanted to be in his own bed. So Angie bought him a beautiful race car bed <laughs> with, you know, has its own bells and whistles. And it's like a real, looks like a Ferrari, but it's a bed. And so he was so excited that he just didn't, you know, he wanted his bed. And Zoe's so independent, she weaned herself off of her mother probably by about, I would say, two and a half. And, and Angie bought her a real beautiful, you know, kind of Victorian style, really pretty bed and did her room up real nice. So it was kind of like a fairyland. She just wanted to be in her own bed. So my point is, is that there's all these different parenting styles and a lot of people get caught up in what so-called experts are saying, but they take their heart out of it. But then what you're describing, you see, is, is another complex problem, which I've also seen a number of cases of. In fact, I remember when I was in high school, one of my friends was probably 
17, he was still sleeping with his mother. Oh my word. Yeah. And he was having sex with his mother too. And I, so oh. I, I remember thinking, my God, that is one weird situation that he's in. And he, I, I could tell just talking to him about it, he was confused, but, uh, you know, so my point is, is that when, when a parent turns the child into their emotional support system or their parental figure, it really leads to a lot of complicated issues for the rest of that person's life, unless they end up getting good therapy. So when you look at all these developmental building blocks, it's, it's amazing that you were able to make the journey to heal yourself. But, you know, having been through so much, I mean, here you are a mature woman and you're still a beautiful woman. So it's, it, I still feel your presence in you. It's not like you've lost yourself along the way, lost your beauty. It's just, it, I think you just really went on one hell of a hero's journey, didn't you? <laughs> oh, I like it being said like that. That is wonderful. Well, that's what it is. I mean, you really had to find your own path. You know, you had to go through the woods and cut your own path. There wasn't really anybody. I was alone. Yeah, you were deadly alone. When did you first come to realize that you had specifically PTSD and needed realize you needed professional help? And what are the circumstances or symptoms that led to you realizing what your challenge actually was? How did you actually figure it out and say, okay, wow, I've really got PTSD and I need help. It was a bottom. I was, I had met this guy online and um, I had him over, but that was against the rules of the woman whose house I was renting the room from. So she threw my things out. This is a pattern. Wow. She, <laughs> she threw my things out in the driveway and locked me out. He came to get me. It took him many hours till like midnight. I was standing in the driveway. He finally showed up. He took me to this red light district. Um, there were motels there, to a motel. And he left. And he said, well, I'll be back tomorrow. Well, tomorrow came and he didn't show up. And so... I had just enough money to pay for one more uh, day at a motel. I went across the street to another motel, and I sat and pondered. Now, I hadn't realized yet, because I was trying to figure out how in the heck am I going to get out of this situation. I am stranded at this motel. I don't have money, and who do I have to turn to? Well, I thought of this guy that I had met while I was modeling for uh, a lingerie company. It was a lingerie party, and I was employed to model. I called him. He said, I will come and get you. It might take me a while. I have to find a van. Sure enough, and this is the only... Uh, relation I had with him was meeting him at this lingerie party. He shows up at three in the morning with the van. Okay, so now I'm living in the studio next to his and I look in the mirror. I take off my denial glasses for the first time. 
And I, I really take off my survival glasses because all of this was survival. You know, I was just surviving my life. And I get down on my knees and I start sobbing and I say, Jesus, please help me. Help me. And it was at that moment that I had my divine intervention, my conscious awakening, and I realized that I needed help because I was so busy surviving. And also, PTSD will lie to you and tell you that you're okay, kind of similar to addiction, drug addiction or alcoholism. So I got real, and that's when I sought help. The help that I sought was a battery of tests from a psychologist. Like you said earlier, I got several diagnoses, borderline personality disorder, chronic depression, and the results were, guess what? You're only qualified to pour coffee. That's all you can do in life at this point. It was at that moment where my inner determination rose up and I said, you know what? I can design my own recovery. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you're telling me to do. I can seek out professionals that are going to support the kind of recovery that I design. How did they come to that conclusion? Just this battery of uh, psychological tests that they gave me. It's interesting that they would say a thing like that. Well, I remember it well. It was a very thick document. It was very thick. And at the end, it said, I could do a job pouring coffee. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I can see it from a medical perspective, looking at your case history. Right. It, unfortunately, it's... It, it's dangerously close to being another injury. And that's the problem with a diagnosis like that is you're at risk of believing. And I'm proud of you for not falling into the trap of it because God, you don't know how many people I've worked with that believe their diagnosis. And I had to tell them right off the bat, let's not work with that concept. Let's work with what your potential is and not focus on what somebody else has labeled you with. It's a, it's a very dangerous thing to say to somebody. And there's a lot of other ways to say it. It could have said, we need to start you off with a, a job that doesn't require a lot of responsibility and that'll put a lot of stress on you. So let's see what we can find that gives you an income, but also space inside of yourself to do the healing work that you need to do. Because God, here's a woman that was working for General Motors and obviously making a pretty decent amount of money to fund all these men and pay off their debts <laughs> to be told that all she can do now is be a waitress, basically. Is law kind of, law kind firms, of a, you yeah, know, it's a bit of a, hospitals. I mean, yeah, thank you. And I do want to say here that the symptoms I had the PTSD symptoms and the CPTSD symptoms were life-threatening in the sense that I was looking to others to validate my identity, give me a distraction from my pain, and give me a purpose for my life. Getting into relationships 
with people I didn't know led me to, you know, life-threatening situations on more than one occasion. You'll, you'll have to read my book to find out. Oh, I, I read several of them. I was like <laughs> shocked. I'm like, the fact that she's made it through this, I think, you know, when I was reading all this, I'm like, well, I want to talk to her just to celebrate that she's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I have an incredible angelic team around me. Well, they, they, you, you do, but they certainly do let you take the trail of tears to learn, don't they? Yes, they have. Um, I'm not on that trail any longer. And I do want to say my current husband, who I've been married to for it'll be 26 years this month, told me, because I had just met him, I had my awakening and uh, four months later, I met him, ironically. And when I got this uh, big, thick binder with the diagnoses, he said, and he read it, he said, please throw it out. Good man. Give him a hug from me. <laughs> throw it out. Don't yeah. believe it. Well, you know, I think it's, it's one of those double-edged swords because it establishes from a medical perspective that yes, there's really something wrong that, that there's a reason that you've, yeah. your life has unfolded this way, but at the same time, you don't want to get too identified with it or you're likely to fall back into the same pattern again, because even though your husband may be uh, Jesus reincarnated, come to rescue you, <laughs> somebody with your symptom profile can actually start becoming uh, the, the threat to that person. Yes. Because many, many of my PTSD clients suffer from anger and violent outbursts and, and, and they go through periods where they're so violent to their own family and even children, but they actually are kind of in a really like almost a, a derealized state, almost like they're drunk, but don't know what they're doing. And all of a sudden they wake up after at some point and look back and go, I don't even know how I did that or why I did that, you know? Yeah. So you can get with enough head trauma and enough emotional trauma like that, you can get so scrambled that you, you can ultimately end up biting the hand that's trying to feed you, not even realizing what you're doing. You know, the old saying, never pet a wounded dog. Cause even if it loves you when it's wounded, it doesn't know who's a friend or an enemy anymore. So it's, Absolutely. it's, it's, it's a great thing that he told you to throw that away. And I, I really applaud him for that. But it's also great that you recognized enough of what was going on in you to stay healthy in that relationship so that it could ultimately give you the secure attachment and give you the love that you could use as a, a, a vehicle and a, a, an embrace so that you could heal. Because it's very hard to heal if you don't have love in your life, you know. Most people with that profile don't know how to love themselves. They haven't ever learned how to love themselves. So they end up doing a lot of what you did, which is trying to get love by sacrificing themselves for others, which leads to a lot more codependencies. So one of the things that's very important in healing from a case history like that is to be able to find people in your life that can share safe love with you, which is, it can be quite hard to do if you're in a small town or you're, you're, um, 
having a hard time connecting with people in relationships because of all the trauma. So it, it is, uh, these things are like Mexican finger traps, you know, I, I think most people would know what a Mexican finger trap is, but you put one finger in each end and the harder you try to get out of it, the harder it holds you in. So you can't ever get out of it. But uh, what were some of the key symptoms that you now recognize as PTSD? And then for the listeners, what would be some of the additional symptoms that would point to complex PTSD? I think it's important for the listeners to be able to have some kind of a structure so that they can look at themselves in the mirror and say, do I have this going on? Yes. And I just want to note also from a previous discussion that the only person that can save you is you. Absolutely. And that's what I, I learned. I mean, my husband helped me, but we have been on our own healing journey together. And it's, you know, we were both injured and, you know, we were we were destined to meet, but that was just the beginning of us learning how to love. It, it took it took quite a bit. But um NH I'm sorry, NHS.uk describes PTSD as an anxiety disorder caused by very stressful, frightening, or distressing events. Here's a list of the symptoms of PTSD. Vivid flashbacks, intrusive thoughts or images, nightmares, intense distress from triggers, physical sensations such as pain, sweating, nausea, trembling, uh, heart palpitations, tachycardia, hypervigilance, disturbed sleep or the inability to sleep, finding it very difficult to concentrate or focus, being jumpy or getting startled very easily. Uh, many do this, stay too busy so they will avoid their pain or the above symptoms. Memory lapses, feeling emotionally numb or unable to identify how you feel at all. Self-destructive and reckless behavior. And finally, using alcohol, drugs, or sex to avoid memories. Now, CPTSD, according to the same um, uh, source, is the repeated traumas such as neglect, abuse, or violence, and sexual assault, it's what CPTSD is. It may not develop until years after the event. It's often more severe if the trauma was experienced early in life, as that can affect the childhood development. Here are the symptoms of CPTSD, which I found so validating because I was so enveloped in these difficulty regulating your emotions really your emotions run you so you don't run your life your emotions run your life feeling very angry or distrust distrustful at the world and that went into some paranoia as well for me feeling permanently damaged or worthless never going to be able to be fixed Constant feelings of emptiness or hopelessness, along with suicidal thoughts and or ideation. 
and feeling as if you're completely different from everyone else and that no one will ever understand what you're experiencing. That's from mind.org.uk. Unfortunately, that's a significant percentage of the world population. Um, I can't remember the name of Basil van der Klok's book. Uh, you know who Basil van der Klok is? He's an expert on trauma and trauma healing. Oh, uh, no, I, I hadn't heard of him yet. Yeah, he's got a great, fantastic book. Um, I wish I could remember the title right now. But I'll, I'll remember the name. <laughs> yeah, Basil van der Klok, MD. Um, it's a great name. Yeah, and and I think the... I'm trying to go from memory here, but it's something like 47% of children are raised in violent households. And I'm just going off of vague memory, but uh, there's a lot of shocking statistics in the book that, that really, even as a therapist with a lot of experience and dealing with all this stuff, I was really shocked that it, that it was that bad. It, it's, it's a very high amount, but you know, we don't, because we go about our normal life, you know, when you're a kid in school, I mean, you know, my father was very violent, but honestly, so was most of my friend's fathers. It was kind of like, it just seemed to be two things that get together, Catholic upbringing and the countryside where ch kids are raised like animals and beaten like animals and work really hard. So I guess for me as a kid, I'd looked around and saw, well, God, a lot of my friends are kind of living the same life. Maybe this is just the way it is, you know? It, so yeah. I, it, it kind of made me sad, but uh, I don't know. I just turned to sports for my own, I think, healing really. But um, the point being is, is that these issues that are categorized as PTSD and complex PTSD are actually a lot more common than we realize. And unless you get close enough to a person in relationship to be around them enough to watch their personality change or to see moments of paranoia or flash anger or emotional responses that are seemingly inappropriate for the circumstance at hand, you don't really know because people with these disorders become very capable of they kind of become like chameleons. They can kind of cloak into the environment so that they don't draw too much attention to themselves. But once enough pressure happens, their fuse is very short. And in my life of relationships with women, I've had a number of oh, probably at least three times where I met a woman, we became friends, and then it naturally led to sexual intimacy. But after having sex, all of a sudden, they completely changed and, and became very aloof and very uh, isolated and cold. And mm. it was really like a trauma reaction. But by that time, I had enough knowledge as a therapist that I pretty much already knew what was going on. And so I, in every case, I said, "You have you been sexually traumatized? And they said, yes, I was raped. But all of them were raped. And wow. uh so I understood what was going on. Otherwise, <laughs> it might have damaged a man's ego, you know, because you'd have thought, oh, God, they're, they're, the sex was so bad, they, they got traumatized by their boredom or something. But 
I realized what was going on. But, you know, th these are important things because there's a lot of young men out there and young women that could be beginning in a relationship where sex is happening. And all of a sudden, the person they're getting intimate with changes radically and they don't realize that it's not them. It's something that's going on in the person, usually a, an unhealed trauma or a series of traumas. So I think it's important for everybody listening to realize that these things can happen. And if this does happen to you, when intimacy starts in a relationship, it's a real good indicator that, you know, that person probably needs help, but you might want to ask them as politely and safely as you can, if they've had a sexual trauma in the past, or if they have been through an unhealed traumatic experience in their in their life or multiple of them because that might be the moment of awakening for that person as well and it also is important for the person to try to differentiate whether it's something that they've done or whether it's just something that's um, bringing up a trauma to the surface and it's not necessarily their fault and and the reason that's so important is because like I said people with these disorders are very good at cloaking themselves but we, we each have triggers, you know, and whenever someone's sexually traumatized, as soon as their genitals get involved in the relationship, then that presses the hot button. And so that's really how the body works so that the trauma can then be seen so that it, it, you can do something about it. If we repress this stuff so thoroughly that it never came up, then it would just be working through our unconscious and we would always be acting in the kinds of ways that you've described but never really realizing what's going on. So the body has these trigger mechanisms so that the pain emerges and the confusion emerges so others can see it. And it actually is kind of like a fishing lure that attracts help. Someone eventually says, you need help, you know? And, and then, of course, you got to deal with the denial that you talked about because a lot of the people that need the help will deny it. And, and I, I remember, for example, I was having sex with a woman that was probably 35 at the time. And I immediately recognized this because it was the first time that we'd made love together. And I saw these behavioral patterns emerge. And right away I said to her, have, have you ever been raped before? And she started to cry and, and, and literally shake and, and convulse, you know, like really like, like a heavy traumatic reaction. Mm -hmm. and, and she said, yes. And so I asked her, have you ever had therapy or help? And she said, no. And I, I said to her, you know, you really need to do that because if you ever want to get married and have a healthy relationship, you need to work on that because otherwise you're probably going to have a really short-lived marriage or a traumatic marriage. And, and I think it's important that you address that. So my point is every now and then, you know, if we didn't have these trigger points in us that bring the complex alive so that it can be seen people could go on forever without realizing how damaged they are and of course that all gets internalized and it just actually becomes like petrified wood you get kind of caught in the cage of your own trauma absolutely yes and that's my story over 20 years spiral you know with these symptoms and just going down, down, down the spiral because I couldn't find my way out. And also I feel um, 
my relationship with my mom, which I've done extensive work on, and she just passed away in late February, um, really played a pivotal role in how I related to people. I was always looking for validation. Can you tell me who I am? Can you show me who I am? Am I going to find it through this sexual relationship, that sexual relationship? So I had that going on as well as all the, the behavior from the symptoms I just mentioned. So it was very, like you said, complex what was going on with me. Hi, everybody. I'm sure grateful to have you on this journey with me and listening to the podcast and picking up new and interesting ways that we can all work together to make the world a better place for all living beings now and in the future. Today, I'm really excited to tell you about Paleo Valley's new wild-caught fish row. Have you ever tried wild-caught fish row? I grew up on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, and each year during the salmon run, fish row was plentiful, and when I'd eat it, I could just feel my body saying yes and wanting more. And that is exactly what happens every time I use Paleo Valley's carefully freeze-dried wild-caught fish row capsules. Fish row is an excellent addition to your daily health plan and is prized around the world by various cultures containing an array of beneficial nutrients you'd get with whole food fish. Paleo Valley's wild-caught fish row comes from fish caught by sustainably-minded fishermen committed to preserving fish runs for future generations, and it's super clean and healthy. It gives your body a great dose of easily absorbed omega-3 fatty acids, which are super important and helpful. In fact, a recent study found 68% of American adults are not consuming enough omega-3s, and 89% had levels in the dangerously low range associated with high cardiovascular risk. Omega-3 deficiencies can cause imbalances in the omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid ratio, causing things like unhealthy levels of inflammation, low energy levels, poor memory, joint discomfort, dry skin, heart problems, mood swings, and even depression. Fish row is rich in essential long-chain omega-3 fatty acids from acosapentaenoic acid, EPA, and decosahexaenoic acid, DHA, which have been linked to less inflammation in consumers, improved cognitive function, healthy mood and mental health, better vision, healthy blood pressure, supported cardiovascular health, and strong immune function, and more. Plus, Paleo Valley wild-caught fish row is enhanced with other additional compounds and nutrients such as protein, DPA, choline, selenium, vitamins E, C, D, B2, and phospholipids for added benefits. To get your Paleo Valley fish row, go to paleovalley.com forward slash check 15. That's P-A-L-E-O valley.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. Living 4D listeners save 15% on purchase using the code C-H-E-K 15 at checkout. Check 15. If you're interested in research to back anything I've shared here, feel free to reach out to Paleo Valley and they can help you. Enjoy feeling great eating Paleo Valley's wild-caught fish row capsules each day. I love them, and I use them every day. Ariel, you shared with me that developmental traumas are seemingly untreated, um, that were seemingly untreated, stopped your emotional development as a young woman. This led to making some suboptimal decisions that led to more trauma, as you've described. Can you share your thoughts on a couple of things here? Um, 
how seemingly unrelated trauma accumulates and how often unrecognized developmental trauma in our childhood can ultimately lead to blind spots that increase the likelihood of more trauma, be it through poor choices in self-management, who one chooses as friends, how they relate to others, what kinds of sex and drug situations they end up in, and how this uh, combination can ultimately trigger a downward spiral. Now, we've covered a fair bit of this already, but if there's any extra thoughts that you'd like to share based on what we've covered so far in this regard, um, I think it might be important just for people to hear. So how can uh, seemingly unrelated trauma accumulate? And then how does this unrecognized trauma lead to the kind of situation that you've been through and described? Well, I'll go back to um, when my parents forced me to go back into the work environment. But even before that, Paul, being raised by a narcissistic mother and a subjugated father. What do you mean by subjugated? Aloof? No, I mean, I mean, um, he didn't have his identity. He he had to do everything she told him to do. Okay. He couldn't. Ha she was jealous of him having a relationship, a father daughter relationship with me. So she didn't let that happen. That's sad. So I didn't have a relationship with my dad for this reason. Um, she didn't want me to have the spotlight taken off her and put on me like a, you know, a normal mom would be yeah. encouraging you. And so this was very traumatic. It caused me to become uh, OCD at the age of six. Um, she was also a perfectionist, so if I didn't do everything perfectly, I wouldn't get, you know, kudos or what little love she was able to give to me, I would not receive. I knew that as soon as you told me about the mirror. <laughs> yeah. That's classic perfectionist behavior. <laughs> well, that that was also because... I wanted to uh, start to transition my diet when I moved in with them because I was starting to become aware of the unhealthy foods, you know, I was raised on. And um, again, that poked at her narcissistic wound. You know, I wasn't to make different meals. And so she was already getting angry at me that I, you know, didn't like her food. Yeah, it's sad. And also, she, when I made the, they didn't know about the gang rape. They only knew about the boss's husband, and they just wrote that off. Um, they never sought help for me. And so they, you know, what you said earlier, the, the way to be a good parent is to, experience your child they didn't have any experience of who i was only the experience of who they wanted me to be unfortunately that's extremely common yeah i i just contributed a chapter not too long ago in a book on parenting by ben greenfield my 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 you know i have two wives angie and penny so we all shared our wisdom, but mostly Angie and I conveyed it into the chapter. 
But one of the key things that we talked about, because I've seen this be a major problem, especially with child prodigy athletes, is the parents have this misunderstood conception that they think that they own the child, that, that it's theirs like a possession, like a tool or a car. It's my car or, you know, my shovel. And they want to then make the child go to the classes that must take and become the uh, professional it it must be and and has there's very little interest in what the child's natural loves and inspirations are and curiosities are and so Angie and I made the point real clearly in this parenting book that the function of a parent is not to own a child but to be the caretaker of a soul that's a divine gift and our job is to help them explore their innate talents to find out what it is that they came to the world to do so that they can find a labor of love that will sustain them and bring out their genius and give it to the world. But when you look at how most people are parented, it's no wonder we, you know, not long ago, um, I saw a lecture, one with Albert, uh, uh, excuse me, Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually. Oh, and he. He was quoting statistics. He quoted a research study from Europe that showed that 75% of people surveyed in large surveys said they hated their job. And in the United States, 70% of people said they hated their job. So what you end up getting when you parent kids like that is adults that actually do what their parents conditioned them to do and think they're supposed to do and think it's what they've got to do to make a living but they're actually living in flatland, never enjoying their work. And, and so it basically leads to a lot of alcohol abuse and a lot of addiction and a lot of basically derealization in ways that are socially acceptable, like drinking wine and drinking alcohol and smoking a lot of pot and playing a lot of video games. And so they kind of hold up the, the provider's agreement for their kids and their family by making money. But on the inside, it's like rot is just growing and growing and, and they're just surviving their life. And it's interesting, too, because uh, research I read, I believe, with James Hollis, I did a, a study, one of his books and programs called Into the Dark Wood about midlife crisis. But psychologists are, are now saying that there's children as young as 18 years of age going through midlife crisis. Because they've been tasked with so much adult responsibility from so young and had so much pressure put on them that they actually are at a midlife crisis point and they're only 18 years of age, <laughs> you know. And so we really do have a, a parenting crisis. And I'm very sad to say, having been a therapist for almost 40 years, a large percent of this comes directly out of religious programming and religious ideology. and it's sad to see that religion that's actually designed to give us ethical and moral principles to support the development of a society, a culture, and help people harmonize together has been so contorted and confused that parents beat their children in the name of God and Jesus and every other thing. And it, it's just, I don't know, I think we're we're at a point and that's one of the reasons I wanted to share your story is we're at a point where people really, parents 
at any age have to wake up. I mean, I can look at how I raised my first son, who's 43 now and has a, his own child. He was born when I just turned 18. Wow. And so I really had no idea about what it meant to be a parent. And I never had experienced love and support from my parents. My mother did the best she could, but she was working constantly. And my father was abusive. My first father left when I was three and then drowned when I was eight. So I had to go through the experience of losing my father, oh. as did my brothers and sisters. So when I look at how I parented my first son, I look back and see, wow, I was so busy trying to just make sure there was food on the table and that I could support them because my parents didn't have any money and her parents didn't have any money. So I had no choice except to make it go. The good thing is I was really, really in love with my first wife. And I, the good news is that my parents taught me a very strong work ethic. So I, I didn't have any fear about going out into the world, but the problem was is that I hadn't developed my identity yet. So what I did was I went into the work world and I started making good money, but it got me so high to, to have all this freedom that I felt alive. You know, it's like finally I can make decisions for myself. I can do what I want. So I so immersed myself in in the quest to, to be successful and to have the financial freedom to have the things that I want because my parents fought over money all the time yeah. that I actually didn't spend much time connecting to my first son, which really create quite a, a lot of damage in him. And then I knew I needed to get a divorce in my first from my first wife when my son was eight but I didn't want to damage him because I'd seen as a therapist how damaging it was. So I held on till he was 14 thinking it would be, he'd be more capable of understanding, but in, in all honesty, it didn't help. Uh, you know, the, the divorce, I remember when, when we sat him down at the table and told him that we were getting a divorce, he, he broke out into tears and he said, you know, I was so proud because I was the only one I know in my whole school whose parents were still together. Oh my gosh. And he said, now I'm like the rest of the kids. Uh -huh. And it, it just was like a knife going through my heart, but I just knew that we weren't compatible together anymore. We'd been together since we were 16 and yeah, it was just, you know, one of those things, but I bring this up just to, to make the point that, you know, you, you can, you can fall into the role of a parent when you're young. And if you haven't been parented effectively, then you don't even realize that you don't know how to parent. And then later you can be the parent of a kid who's in the first grade or second grade or fifth grade or eighth grade that's having a lot of problems in school. And then all of a sudden the kid's getting labeled as this or that or a bully or whatever, or you're starting to label the kid, but not realizing that it's a developmental disorder that the child's trying to cope with this lack of connection to mom and dad or dealing with mom and dad's trauma and mom and dad's battles or has been turned into a parent by mom and dad. So it's a very, very complex situation. And so when I was 56, Angie got pregnant, which shocked the hell out of me because I just really didn't want to go through all that work to be a parent again. But 
the good news is, is that it blew my heart right open, you know, and I'd evolved very much spiritually since my childhood and my younger adult years. And so it opened me up to the realization that I was now in a position to use my life wisdom to not make the mistakes I did in my first marriage with my first son. And then now I have a, so now Mana's seven and we have Zoe who's going to be four this summer. But it, it's amazing for me as a man to be able to see how life and my work as a therapist and all my study gave me what I need to actually be a father. And even so, I'm a very busy man. I have to, both Angie and Penny are constantly keeping an eye on me because it's very natural for me to stay focused like a laser beam and work, 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 develop, develop, help everybody else. It's like I've got this sort of, you know, help others because I think early in my career, it gave me a sense of identity, but it's easy to forget that the people that you live with and love need your help and support and your love too. So I think these are very complex issues. And with COVID and all the isolation and masking and the uh, breakdown of the family unit, the amount of, of uh, psychological illness and suicide and um, violence in families has shot through the roof. And yes. so I think we're uh, in a time where people really need to be more aware of, of these kinds of situations that you're describing. And that's really what I wanted to showcase with you is, is because I think now more than ever, we need to be aware as parents of how important it is to realize that it's our job to be the guardians of a divine being and not own that being and not control that being, but to create a safe container for that soul to find their own path where their heart is harmonized to and nurture them to do that. And, and I'm grateful that I get to do that for my, my kids. And it's also important for people that have been raised in these kinds of challenging relationships with parents that we're talking about to realize that now is a good chance to start not only doing some work on yourself, but seeing if you can get into the hands of a skilled family and marriage counselor and, and do some work with your parents to see if you can kind of bring some issues up on the table and find a good um, way to reconnect with each other. And, and part of the problem too, as you know, is obviously your mother was damaged, right? And your father was damaged. So kids don't know when they're kids, that mom and dad are dealing with all the pressures of life and that things can be very challenging, job losses, financial stress, addictions, all the stuff that we all deal with today, our parents were dealing with. But we always, as kids, have this idea that mom and dad have everything under control and, you know, that everything's going hunky-dory and that they're the, somehow these perfected beings. But as you grow up yourself, you look back and you go, wow, you know, like I can look back and, and my mother was clearly a, a PTSD case. Uh, my mother was clearly heavily traumatized. Yes. And, and so was my father. But, but as a kid, you don't know what's going on. So point being is by the time, you know, you get to be old enough to listen to a podcast like this, 
you're going to have a hell of a lot of stress in your family and a lot of disconnection in your family. But now you can look at your parents and say, wow, my mom and dad at least managed to get me into the world. I'm, I'm still here. Uh, you know, my, my, my body works, my mind works. So I'm, I'm okay. But now I can go back and speak to them as humans, you know, as, as human beings that were parents, but also acknowledge that they too had trauma that was unresolved. So I think if people can recognize everything we're talking about here and take advantage of it and say, well, maybe I can do some healing work. I highly recommend, by the way, this little beautiful book by Wayland Myers called Nonviolent Communications, the, uh, the Basics as I Know and Use Them. It's a beautiful oh, yeah. little pocketbook. And I've actually had Wayland Myers on my podcast before. So if any of you would like to explore the basics of nonviolent communication, this little book by Wayland Myers, it'll fit right in your pocket, but it's a super important book to study if you're going to do any work on healing traumas with uh, spouses, co-workers, boyfriends, girlfriends, parents, brothers, and sisters. Because if you don't have those basic communication skills, what happens is we try to express ourselves, but we don't realize that we're using violent communications and it triggers a reaction from people. Yes. But with these basic nonviolent communication skills, it's a lot easier to express what your wants, feelings, and needs are in ways that don't threaten people, but give them a chance to, to really see, feel, and hear you for the first time. So I would encourage any of you that's going to find a family and marriage counselor to find somebody that not only is a psychologist, but has done training in nonviolent communication. Because unfortunately, the uh, <laughs> psychology isn't batting too well either. Uh, right. They're not... They're not too much better off than the medical community. I mean, I agree. I have a long list of patients that spent years and years seeing psychotherapists and didn't really get anywhere. But um, I think that uh, if you find somebody who's got a background in nonviolent communication or even just go to the NVC, I think it's NVC.org and, and ask someone there who they know as a family and marriage counselor that's done training with them, I think it would really help a lot. Yes, I've studied NVC. That's fantastic. Well, as a, as a life coach, it's got to be a very important skill for you. Yes, yes. Now, you know, we've been talking about these traumatic sexual injuries. We've talked about, you know, the challenges of the church, unfortunately. You know, the old saying, the devil's favorite place to hide is in the church, and it's just too damn true. Yeah. There's a great book I read uh, that's quite potent. It's called Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. And I think we all know that. Yes. I would love to hear, Ariel, as a woman with your experience and now the education you've gained in your life, what suggestions do you have for people that are in this kind of complex, traumatic, scary situation where maybe they're being sexually abused? by somebody at church, somebody at school, or maybe even in their own house. Um, what would you share with people like that? Because that that can be super tricky to get out of. I mean, your own story is a good example. You told your parents about what happened, and they didn't protect you. They, they, they really actually took you deeper into the trauma and the insecurity, because now all it did was show you that your parents really didn't express that much love and protection for you. Um, 
as, as violent as my stepfather was, I know if somebody would have raped one of my sisters, it would have been on the front page news because my father would have gone down there and, and probably hung them right downtown so everybody could see it because he's just that kind of dude. You know, he's one of these country guys that you just don't mess with unless you want to meet God. And so we have everything from people, parents that are completely passive or too insecure or uh, so worried about their own reputation that they don't want to tell anybody about what's going on in their family. I found something interesting as a therapist, by the way, and I have a feeling you'll appreciate this and agree with it. Usually the more perfect a family looks on the outside, the more trouble there is on the inside. Yeah. I've been involved in a lot of family therapy and I, I watch how they behave and how they interact with each other. And if it, whenever I see it looking too polished and too good, I smell a rat. And so far I'm batting a hundred percent on that, you know, so there's always that, but I'd love to hear what would you tell people that are in a situation like that, or maybe even have grown up, but have never really been able to go back and heal it. Well, I'll first address if you're in it now. The first thing I suggest is speak to someone that you trust. It doesn't matter if you don't have the financial means to go to a therapist. Go to someone you trust, a co-worker, or visit my website, rlspring.net, where I have many resources, hotlines, all kinds of places you can call to get it out. It's so important that you don't hold it in. You've got to start to develop your voice to get it out. That's my number, number one recommendation. And really, if you're realizing that you need to heal stuff, that's the same advice. Talk to someone. And if you do have the financial means, make sure you're selecting a psychologist that is versed in trauma, in PTSD and CPTSD. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show. I imagine you know that magnesium is one of the minerals that people in North America are the most efficient in, but it's an extremely important mineral to have in your diet regularly. And believe it or not, Bioptimizers has improved what was already well known to be the best magnesium formula out there called Magnesium Breakthrough. So I've got Wade Lightheart with me to explain what it is they've done to improve this already excellent formula. Wade, what is new about your new Mag Breakthrough formula? Well, it's called sucrosomial magnesium. So we have seven different types of magnesium in Magnesium Breakthrough because they're uptaken by different parts of the body. But a new type of magnesium has been created called sucrosomial. And what it shows in the research and science is that it's actually even more absorbable by the body, particularly inside of the brain, which is a big aspect uh, to enhance neurotransmitter formation, as well as ensuring the rest and relax response in the nervous system that a lot of people will take magnesium for. They find it, you know, clocks them down, helps them sleep better, allows for the relaxation of striated and smooth muscle tissue in the body, which creates an energetic relief. And so when we added sucrosomial, we were able to demonstrate inside our lab facility that we were able to get 
better improvements. Of course, we have a partnership with the Birch International University. We have some patents we're working on, uh, which will kind of relay some of these things. But sucrosomial was a no-brainer when we added to the formula, improved the results or improved the uptake. And the reports back from our testing team were like, wow, this we get more results with less caps. And that's always the goal for our company. That's excellent. I love it. I, I always say, and people have probably heard me say it before, I just am so amazed how you guys are constantly and always improving and working your best to not only make better products for us, but it doesn't seem to me that it gets more expensive as you make them better. So that's a real gift to the world. Thank you. Where can people get their new magnesium breakthrough formula? All they need to do is go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash living4d, put in Paul 10, get 10% discount on your first bottle. And of course, if you order multiple bottles, you can get an extensive discount on that as well. And like everything else we sell, 365 day money back guarantee. If this isn't the best magnesium you've ever taken in your life, we demand that you tell us and we can give you your money back. But I think you're probably going to demand, hey, can I get more of this? <laughs> that, that's probably more the truth. So that's mag, M-A-G, breakthrough.com forward slash living number four. And then the letter D code Paul 10. Enjoy deeper relaxation and better nutrition with mag breakthrough. One of the challenges we've touched on it a bit, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to share some more of your wisdom. A lot of people that have these problems have convinced themselves that there's nothing wrong with them. And one of the things that's interesting about that, having worked with a lot of them, is they always end up with a lot of relationship problems and even problems at work. But when I work with them, they're always telling me why mom's a nutcase or dad's a nutcase or everybody else is a nutcase. So they don't realize that what they're doing to protect themselves consciously or unconsciously from having to accept that they have been traumatized, that they're injured, or that they need help is to protect the, I think the ego doesn't want to be diminished anymore. So what it does is it projects its, its own pain out by making everybody else the bad guy. There's always an old saying, you can always tell who the crazy person is because they tell you everybody else is crazy. I remember when I graduated from life coaching school and I got into a, a coaching support group circle of my fellow graduates and they sat in the circle and they said, you know, after us meeting six months, you know, Ariel, we really don't know you. We don't know who you are. You just have this polished exterior, you know, and I was just insulted, you know. I thought, <laughs> what are you talking about? But it's an example of what you were just speaking of, Paul, that yeah. I projected this image of perfection so no one would be able to see how much I was suffering and didn't have it together inside. You know, shortly after that, I got into therapy. Yeah, well, that's good. You see, sometimes honesty has takes you a long ways, you know, and I think, I think uh, that's a part of the healing is, is being honest with friends and lovers and people. And, and you know, it's, it's tricky because unless you have enough knowledge to actually know for sure something's wrong, then it can be scary because they can take it as though you're diagnosing them or judging them. But I think 
I think one of the questions that I would ask if I was in that situation, I didn't have the knowledge I do now would be, have you ever noticed that you have a pattern of this type of situation like breakups or uh, thinking someone's really cool and your friend, but all of a sudden you don't like them anymore or feeling very connected to somebody, but all of a sudden rejecting them and finding that they're not who you thought they were or, you know, I think one of the key things is asking someone if there's a pattern to their relationships that's starting to mirror itself, because that way you're not saying that there's something wrong with you. You're saying, really, is there a reoccurring theme? Because basically we will keep attracting people into our lives that have the likelihood of reenacting our traumas until we actually heal them. And that's yes. that's a, a very well borne out thing. I, I used to be earlier in my career when I owned a physical therapy clinic, I used to go to these meetings at Sharp Hospital Sharp's Hospital, and they would have um every month they would have a specialist come in. It was it was for dealing with challenging cases that were very hard to figure out. And I just happened to show up one day when they had a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist as the guest. And this topic was uh, dealing with traumatic injuries. And he showed us this case history and he had slides because he'd been a psychiatrist to this woman for, I don't know, probably, I would imagine, 15 or 20 years, probably 20 years. And in that time, he documented seven marriages. She'd gotten married seven different times in the time he was her psychiatrist. Interestingly, to policemen and <laughs> other, you know, big wig type executives, all of which just beat the hell out of her. And he had pictures of, of her just beat up bad. And, and you could see her each each case history, she got older and older and older. And this went on for probably 20 years through seven marriages. And so that what he was showing was how until a person gets healed, they keep enacting the same behaviors and they attract the same kinds of people. And to make his point, he said, look, this woman married seven wife beaters in a row. And so I think that a lot of people don't realize that if they don't look for the patterns in their life that are obviously repeat behaviors or re repeat performances of things that none of us would ever want to have repeated. I mean, who wants to get raped twice? Who wants to get beat up twice? Who wants to be abandoned two, three, four, five times? So once you start seeing, okay, there's this pattern of abandonment, there's this pattern of abuse, or there's this pattern of sexual abuse, or there's this pattern I have of getting into relationships quickly and becoming sexually explicit that then lead to complications. Um, so I think by uh, asking someone if there's a pattern is a lot better than saying, you know, you act like someone who's <laughs> got a mental problem because that'll never come across well. <laughs> I, I, so my curious is what are some of the could I just add to that? Yeah, please do. I think that's just an amazing point. And I also want to add, when you begin to look at the patterns, I would help them go underneath 
underneath the pattern to get to what what I'm doing now is um, uh, reparenting of my child parts. Good, very good. Yeah, I do that as as part of shamanism for soul recovery. Yes, and that's really helped. I think that can really once you go underneath the pattern, you're going to understand. You're going to get to know yourself basically and see each trauma event where you got stunted and these parts developed and are really running your life in many ways. Your healthy adult is really in many cases in such uh, acute trauma as mine. I wasn't running my life. My child parts, I've identified 12, were running my life. And since yeah. I've gotten to reparent them and understand them and give them love and attention that they didn't get from their other parents, their real parents, it's it's a real game changer. Yeah, it is. And just for you listeners, that's classically called soul loss. Um, in shamanism, that, that's how that's classified. Um, I've worked. Angie and I are working with people on soul loss regularly in our, our professional work. And uh, I actually had a case of a woman that distinctly stands out my memory, very much like your case. Um, and I, I used with her as I have many people, but I had her develop, I had her go by Play-Doh and recreate sort of like the breakfast, the, the dinner table scene in her house, and then make each of her family members up, including her. And I identified in the soul loss, uh, soul recovery ceremony that I did with her. If I remember right, she had like 16 points of soul loss so where the child had been traumatized. So we work on a timeline. So I had her begin working with each of these soul fragments and reenact it make up a little figurine out of clay that represents that broken part of you spend time with it, mother it, talk to it. You know, if it wants to play with dolls, play with dolls, whatever you want to do, yeah. but it really, it really helped her heal a lot. And and I remember her, Oh, probably about a year after I had begun therapy with her. She just spontaneously told me how, much better she felt from doing that work and um, how she wished more people knew about that approach. But it, it really is uh, very, very important for us to, because we all recognize what our parents didn't do well, but it also means that if we can see what our parents didn't do well and we want to heal, that we have to take responsibility for doing what they didn't do well. Yes. Or we're, or we're always going to be expecting somebody else to rescue us. Right. We're always going to be a victim. Carl Jung says all children are tasked with the unfinished business of their parents' lives. And it's just damn true. What are, what I was wanting to hear from you is what are some of the symptoms and indicators that would help a listener recognize that they've been injured and need to begin a healing journey. We've talked about some, but if you were to say, okay, Ariel, if you walked into a room, say a meeting, or you were a consultant for a business and you had to go t 
talk to people in the business, maybe one at a time, like maybe you were doing some kind of an investigation. What are some of the things that you know as a therapist now that would tell you this person needs help, whether they know it or not? If I noticed they were withdrawn, uh, if they seemed detached from their body, would be a really good sign. If I noticed they angered very easily, that would be another good sign. If I noticed they were easily agitated, another sign. Or if I just noticed they were sitting there with a blank stare on their face, I would gather that they were numb and they couldn't feel anything at all. If they just looked dejected, I would sense that they had lost hope and direction in their lives. If I noticed that they were so self-absorbed that they couldn't care for other people at all, and everything was about them, and, and in other words, the trauma is all, has almost become their identity. Yes. That would be another sign. Um, or if they couldn't concentrate or focus, that if they had horrible anxiety or if they had to leave because they were having a panic attack. I used to have, and I mean, I still deal with this, but I used to have horrible social anxiety to where, you know, I'd be, I was working for a domestic abuse network and I was a support group facilitator and they liked my work so much in crisis that they invited me to the, uh, advocates meetings and I would just be there shaking in my chair and I would have to try to keep it together and focus because it was so bad but that's before I did a lot of nutritional therapy and things of this nature to help with that anxiety level or the final thing is if I noticed that they just weren't doing anything in their life that they enjoyed Yes. Some of the other things that, that I would recognize are perfectionism. Uh, uh, too much too much investment in their outward appearance, almost like a, a, a Barbie doll kind of polished look. Um, every- That's very, very prevalent in women today in our society. Yes. They have to get their breasts augmented, their their Botox, their uh, gluteus um, enhanced. I mean, it's really out of control. Yes. And then also um, sweating of the hands, uh, fingers that are sweaty, which is a sympathetic reaction that they, they are not often able to control. And another thing is always watch their breathing. You'll find people like this are either hyperventilating or they're holding their breath and they, they're really rigid in their chest area. Very, very good point. Their rib cage doesn't move. So they're, it's almost as though they're living out of their head because they're afraid to be in their body where they might have to feel their pain. And um, they often have a hard time holding a line of focus because you get sort of this when people are traumatized like that, the soul loss, the fragments 
actually become like watchdogs. So every time you identified those 16 parts of yourself, each one of those actually now serves you by constantly surveilling the environment, looking for any indications that that type of trauma could come again or threat could come again. Yes. So what that does is it actually puts a, a person as they grow up, children and then adults become such that they actually can't keep eye contact or stay with you for very long because their brain is constantly looking around the environment to see if there's any threats in the environment, listening to sounds, anything that is an associative connection to a past trauma. So yes. you, you be with someone like it's, it's almost like they can't carry a conversation on and it can give you the sense that there's an urgency, like they're too busy, like you're, you're holding them up from getting to their next appointment. But really what it is, is that they're actually so busy surveilling the environment for threats all the time. And, and the problem is, is that when you keep looking for threats, if the mind gets damaged enough, it actually starts manufacturing them. And then it can actually think that people are acting in ways toward them that they're not really acting, but they're projecting it onto them because it's the framework that they've begun to see the world in. I, I actually suffered from that. And it wasn't until I did schema therapy where I started to understand these life traps or you, you are talking in shamanistic terms. I think very similar to what I'm describing. Did I start to understand as I started to uncover my true self, my true identity, and develop healthy Ariel, that just lessened and lessened and lessened where I didn't take everything personally that people were doing. Case in point, I moved to be near my parents with my husband two years ago to help them because they were in their mid-90s. Wow. And, um, you know, I had done a lot of therapy at that point, but it was nothing like, you know, being around my mom again to have those wounds reopened that I was able to go underneath and, and really start to finally get out of the resentment, the bitterness, and the anger toward her and have compassion for her deep narcissistic wound. Yeah. And that took a lot of, it took three times a week for two years doing this therapy to, to get out of that trap I was in, like you just described, Paul. Yes. Well, I'm glad that you were able to have that chance to reconnect and give yourself a chance to go through the process of allowing your mother's personality, individuality, and, and sort of quirkiness to, to be her own instead of letting it get too deep into you so you could actually let her have herself and say, you know, that's my mother, but it doesn't have to be me, or my mother can be irritating, but I don't have to let her irritate me. I can actually not see her as my mother. I can see her as a woman that's been injured and damaged and, yes. and is in 
is in a situation where she doesn't really realize that she's relating in ways that are not healthy. She wasn't a threat to me anymore. Right. And I just wanted to share that one month before she passed away, she agreed to do a therapy session with me. Well, that's cool. And in that therapy session, we had my dad, we were all on Zoom, my husband, myself, my mother. And my therapist, bless his heart, is so good. And I was pretty good, too, because, again, I I didn't have those wounds showing up in the session. Yeah. That by the end, my mother started crying and could not stop. Probably was important for her to have that healing before she left. Yes. I feel like I was her angel to provide that to her. Yeah, well, that's beautiful. That's what angels do. (laughs) You know, we've talked about the importance for people that are injured, like uh, in all the situation we brought up to learn to love themselves. And I alluded to the fact earlier that a lot of people have a very hard time doing that. They don't even know how to do that. In fact, one of the most common questions I get uh, on my YouTube channel is, I don't know how to love myself. How do I begin to do that? So what are your thoughts and feelings on how somebody can go about the process of, I think we all know why it's important, but what are some thoughts on how somebody could, well, A, recognize that they're not loving themselves, but B, how do they go about doing it? I think what you pointed out, Paul, is for them to step outside themselves and observe themselves. And if they see these patterns happening in their lives over and over and over again, that's the point where they can go, I I don't think I'm loving myself. Right. I'm, I'm in a trap. And then they can seek help, whether it be reading books. Again, if you don't have the financial means, if you don't have the insurance coverage, that's okay. There's many other means to get help now. There's ebooks, there's all kinds of websites, there's Google, there's a lot of ways to understand what's going on. And when you when you just get that kernel of self-love, that will ignite your self-love and do self-care acts, is how I describe them. It's not just a to-do list. Well, today I'm gonna exercise and I'm gonna eat this. But it's coming from your soul, from a place of your innermost self, beginning to see yourself as you are, not with the denial glasses on, and love yourself right there. Yes. I tell my students and my patients, the first thing you ought to do in the morning is get up, look at yourself in the mirror and look right in your eyes and say, I love you. And and you're my best friend. And no matter what's going on, we've always got each other's back and let's take this thing, this project called life and do it full on. And if it's, I, I tell them the harder it is, the more you need it. So practice. Yes. And if that look in the mirror causes you to break down sobbing, Let yourself do that. That is a gift to let the pain out. Another thing, too, is is I think 
a simple way that I encourage people to start loving themselves, I, I just simply say to them, what were the things that you wish that your mother had done more for you so you felt loved by your mom? And then I'll have them like, what's the four most up to four of the things that if you could have just gotten a little bit more of this from mom, you'd have felt more loved and, and it might have changed the whole your whole life. Then do the same thing for dad. Okay, there you go. You got anywhere from two to eight ways that you can practice being that person for yourself. I think Beautiful. part of healing is really recognizing that we can't wait for somebody else to come be our parents and we can't wait for our parents to heal. No, we're adults. We're adults now. We have to yeah. take over. <laughs> and what happens is if you do that, then you're you're actually putting your own healing on the shelf until somebody else heals which is really foregoing your own responsibility for your own healing. So the simple approach that I often take is say, okay, if you wanted more emotional connection from your mother, you probably could use more emotional connection with yourself. So how do you do that? When you feel angry or you feel yourself being judgmental of yourself, then say, ah, there I am being judgmental of myself, angry to myself. And now I get to be mom. How would my loving mother handle me? So then you just switch roles inside yourself. Well, I can see you're really frustrated because you didn't get that job that you wanted. Or I can see that you're irritated because your bottom's looking a little bigger in your jeans or your swimsuit than you wanted. Let me have a little empathy for you. I can I can feel that you're sad right now and and it's okay. Why don't we just take a minute to just really connect to that and and say yes, it is true. I would like to look a little better. I I really would have liked to get that job. But know that it doesn't have to be that way forever and we can make a plan to trim up and we can ask the people that we interviewed with how that that uh we could improve so that we have a better chance of getting hired next time. But point being is we just have to sort of say, okay, now that I know what I wanted from my mom and dad, I got to give it to myself. And then you identify one of the circumstances that would be the indications that you need that particular type of love from the mom or dad that you choose to be now. Yes. And what I would add to that is, and notice when you get self-talk, that sounds like the mom or the dad and notice that's the internalized version of them that naturally got created within you. And then you can talk to that self-talk and say, you know what? I'm not going to listen to that. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's what Freud called the superego, which is the judging parent in your head. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the techniques I use, I learned from Stanley Krippner, a famous psychologist, expert in mythology and many other things, really genius man. But he he says, name it, blame it, and tame it. So you say, <laughs> oh, there's the judging mother again. You named it, judging mother, blame it. Mom, whenever you're around, I feel criticized and belittled, and I don't feel good about having you near me. Tame it. Ah, there you are, mom. Thanks for showing me what your opinion is, but I'm really glad that I'm mature enough now to have my own. So 
just so you know, I don't need you to keep telling me that. And so what you do is you start working with this judgmental parent figure or figures. You name it. You talk about, you blame it. I feel this way when, when that voice arises and you tame it, state what your dream is and what you're willing to do to parent yourself and let them know that that's not necessary anymore. And as you develop those new neural networks in your mind from creating your own parenting structure, then that voice just starts to disappear into the background. So I was emotionally stunted at 16. Yeah. I did. I had the emotional maturity of a 16-year-old a lot of my adult life. So what we're describing here helps one to become an adult, a mature adult, and actually be able to live their life from a healthy place. Well, you know, the other thing that, that comes to me as a therapist is a lot of people will say, Oh, I don't think I can do that. Right. And and I, I say to them, I've got news for you as an adult. There are things that we've got to do that sometimes aren't very comfortable. We're not a kid anymore. So just know that if you can't commit yourself to being the loving parent that you always wanted, you're probably not going to do the real work of healing anyhow. So you have to make it an adult decision. Are you ready to be a little bit vulnerable with yourself and know that you're moving in the direction of wholeness? Or are you going to hit the pause button and just become petrified wood and end up ultimately probably with some kind of an addiction as a coping strategy or a lot of broken relationships? And so I, you know, my my approach as a therapist is when I give someone homework, if they come back and they haven't done the homework, well, then that's what we're doing that session. (laughs) I don't move people past because I found, you know, taking them deeper never works if they're not willing to do stuff like that. So on their own, right? Yeah. I I learned the hard way. (laughs) Once you get in, in with a therapist like yourself, you're working just as hard outside of the session as you are in the session with you. And that's that's when you know you're committed. Yes. Yeah. And then the therapist isn't stressful to be with. They're there as a support for you. You know, if, if the therapist is stressful to be with, it's often because the person's insecure about the fact that they don't want to have to report that they haven't been participating. That they're in resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And that they're listening to their saboteur who is wanting them to stay stuck. Or the or the eternal child. Uh-huh. Forever, forever looking for a mommy or a daddy to rescue, but that's a very long, long wait. And then it just makes for a burned out mommy or daddy when you find them. <laughs> Hi everybody. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. Did you know that statistics show that only 8% of men and 3% of women do any regularly scheduled exercise, including walking a dog? If COVID taught us anything, it was that now it's more important to be healthy and fit than ever before. Are you ready to create the body you want, get fit, be healthy, love what you see in the mirror, wear the clothes you've always wanted to, and have the confidence that you can do it efficiently and effectively? How about having beautiful abs and a lovely butt too? If your answer to these questions is yes, then stick with me for the next couple of minutes and I'll tell you exactly how you can do it. I'll tell you exactly how I do it. 
I was shocked while doing research for course development when I came across a study showing that the average person today only knows 8 to 12 exercises. I was just as shocked when I found a completely independent study showing that the average person today only eats 10 to 12 foods, and that's it. They just live off 10 to 12 foods, often don't look or feel well, but don't know why. That's pretty sad when you consider that about 350,000 edible plants and a fantastic variety of flesh foods we can eat to ensure adequate nutrient variety to keep ourselves healthy. Many people know they need exercise but feel insecure about going to a gym because they aren't sure what to do there and a lot of people that could afford a gym membership can't afford a personal trainer and that sadly may be a good thing. Why? Because a significant percentage of personal trainers got their certificate by doing nothing but reading a book and passing a multiple choice test online. There's no specific technical training on many of the most important aspects of technique or the science of exercise. Rarely is there any mention of the importance of diet and lifestyle factors that are integral to any effective conditioning program. This would be like studying to be a medical doctor and only studying the bones and not knowing anything about how the rest of the systems of the body work or how they work together. My dream when I developed Integrated Movement Science Level 1 was to create a truly functional holistic training program that anyone, not just exercise and health professionals, could study, apply, and get fantastic results with. My Integrated Movement Science program not only gives you the essential training on key self-assessments and how to correct any imbalances identified, you learn how to do all the most important functional exercises we can do in a gym with correct form. You also learn the essentials of how to design an exercise program effectively so that you get the results you want, including how to progress each exercise and your exercise program in carefully planned stages so you get healthier, stronger, and fitter without getting injured. The Czech Institute put Integrated Movement Science 1 online so that you can study and practice at your own pace. Any teenager, athlete, or adult can understand what I share and apply it, and it won't be long at all before your friends and all the personal trainers at the gym notice that what you're doing really works and start asking you questions about how you're getting such good results. In fact, you may love the experience so much you decide it's time to change career and become a Czech professional because it feels so good to help others. To help you look and feel your best between now and July 1st, 2023, I'm offering Living 4D listeners a discount of $125 on my Integrated Movement Science course online. That's IMS1 online. To get your discount and start creating a new, healthier, fitter, sexier you, go to C-H-E-K dot group, G-R-O-U-P, forward slash L number 4 D. IMS1, that's check.group forward slash L4D IMS1. This is not case sensitive, so it will work with either upper or lower case. You will get your $125 discount by using the discount code L4D IMS1. That's L4D IMS and the number 1. Again, it's not case sensitive. Remember, my special offer ends on July 1st, 2023. Now is your chance to be the change and enjoy showing everyone the new you. I'd love to see what you create. Enjoy your journey. You know, you talked about the importance of an exit plan and, and you mentioned when we met before the podcast, how many women get trapped in these problematic relationships and can't get out. Um, and I know exactly what that looks at like from firsthand experience. And I've seen a lot of these cases. It's very hard as a therapist too, because you're, 
you know, you, you have the kind of knowledge and experience I have, you, you can tell right away when someone's in a dangerously codependent relationship and really needs to get out. Um, I could tell you some wild stories, but I don't want to slow us down. Now, you know, having been through this so many times, you emphasized to me, and I even read it in your book, how important it was to have an exit plan and to stick with it. So can you share some of the key things that you think are important for the listeners regarding when is an exit plan needed and what should it include and how do you go about it? Of course, this will depend on whether you have children or you don't. In my case, I did not. So I just had to provide for myself. But it's different when you have children. A lot of times when women do have children and they're in an abusive situation, they stay for the kids. I'm here to say this is not helping your kids. Um, so if you really love your children, you're going to want to take them out of this environment just as fast as you can. That could even mean going to a shelter um, until you can get on your feet. Um, it's so vitally important to get out of the situation, but do it safely. In other words, don't ever tell anyone about the safety plan except those that are involved in the plan. For an example, a lot of women might try to threaten or coerce their partner who's abusing them. Well, I'm going to leave you if you don't change. This is extremely dangerous and puts yourself and your children, your life in danger. So because they'll just become more controlling um, to, to get you to stay. So you don't ever want to think you can change them. The only person you can change is yourself. And your behavior and how you handle it is affecting your children. Yeah. Is that, is there anything else or, or are those the key things? I mean, the key things are to, you know, get, prepare, get a, a nest egg built up. Right. Um, get a savings account in your own name would be the first thing. Um, you know, get housing that's adequate. Unless I said, if you, if you're in dire emergency, you must go to a shelter. I guess someone could borrow money too, if they were financially strapped. Because I've, I've had many women admit to me in therapy, they would have left years and years ago, but they just don't have the money to do it. Um, one of the things, Ariel, that I've found has been the common denominator in women staying in relationships. I understand it, but it's a bit unhealthy and this is something that's come up over and over again i say why do you stay in this relationship when you've been unhappy for 10 15 20 years and you're clearly uh things aren't going to change or they would have changed by now and the answer is i will never find a man who can support me and my kids and give me this lifestyle if i leave i'm not a good looking young woman anymore not many men are going to want three kids. And even though my husband's an asshole or drives me crazy or treats me like shit, 
at least I have enough money to have nice clothes and a nice car and live in a nice house. And that's the prostitute archetype right there. Classically, the prostitute archetype. So it, you see what they're saying is money, money and money and exchanging, uh, caring, caretaking in exchange for the money exchange. Yes. Yes. So really what they're saying is I don't want to be with another person that loves me. I want another person that loves me and can give me this degree of status and lifestyle. And I'm going to take my kids on this journey with me, like it or not, because I don't want a man that's going to, you know, love me in another part of town. I want some, in other words, they don't want to downgrade their, their um, social status or their right. the clothes they wear, the cars they drive, the, the, the circles they move in, right? Maybe they're, a lot of the people that see me, of course, they're married to doctors, to lawyers, to professional athletes, to uh, sure. you know, executives, right? And I'm like, wow, so you're willing to take your kids through all of that and have, you know, often they've got drinking problems and eating problems. And I'm like, you're all for, for the superficial trappings of a social status. And well, not to sound insensitive here, but they just aren't ready. Well, yeah, I, I, and that might be the, the truth too. That the sad part of it, when kids are involved, though, you see, it might take three or four more, five more years, and in the developmental yeah. period of a child's life, that can be an extremely destructive few years waiting to get ready. That's why I mentioned, you know, think about someone other than yourself, your children. Right. You brought them into this world. Fortunately, I never had children, but I told the universe I didn't want children. And so I never, you know, was out there trying to get pregnant because I, I knew I wasn't living a life that was conducive to raising a child. And I do get rather adamant when I see women putting their kids through that and not doing whatever it takes. You know, as, as wounded as my mom was, she needed to go back to work to give us, you know, a better house and, and, and food. And, you know, my dad was a factory worker and she went back to college and she did it. She did what she had to do. Did she do it perfectly? No, she did not. Because she, she couldn't go into emotional space. So she didn't understand emotional space. And how that was so wounding that she couldn't be emotionally there for me. Yeah. But, but she was committed to taking care. And that's what I want to stress is every day that you stay with an abusive man, you're damaging your children's uh, psyche. Yeah. Heart. Future. Their future. Their relationships with themselves and others and the world. And especially when you're on that level of income, they probably can get access to some money, you know, and sure, they're not going to have the, the mansion and the all the trappings that they had, but they won't be homeless on the street either. Right. One of the things that you brought up in your book, which I really appreciated is to never give up. Um, you know, people can get into some pretty desperate situations. You've been there. 
Um, I've seen many people like that. I've seen some really tough cases in my career. And my sure. mother, my mother lived through a lot of hell too. Um, what can you, what can you say to inspire people so that they realize how important it is to never give up? And I think a distinction has to be made. There's a difference between never give up and keep hanging in there and being tough and surviving your trauma right. versus never give up on the path to healing and knowing that no matter how long you have had it, that you still can heal at any age, no matter how screwed up your life has gotten or how addicted you've gotten or how far down the rabbit hole you got with kids being broken. There's every day is a great day to begin healing. So how do you inspire people to not give up? First of all, you helped me see that that sentence should read, never give up on you. Right. There you go. I need to add two more words to that. Right. Because it could be taken, well, just give them a little more time. You right. Know, no, that's not what I'm saying whatsoever. And so um, could you repeat the question? What What are the ways you inspire people to realize it's important to never to never give up on themselves and to never give up on the opportunity to heal? To realize, I mean... If they worked with me as a life coach or a health coach, I would reflect to them how perfectly and wonderfully they're made. Not because they're perfect, but because they're, I would lift them up. They've been dragged down for so long with the abusive partner that they cannot see who they truly are anymore. And that's where the coach comes in to lift them up and reflect to them who they are, what their attributes are, how they've contributed, you know, to show them because they may be feeling like I was, that they're worthless and they have nothing to contribute to society. And they, it's, it's just the first realization for them is to get help to see that there's always, every day is a chance, like you said, Paul, to begin anew. Yes. Can you recommend any uh, groups, associations, organizations? You mentioned an online support group. I think that's one you were part of before. But what are some ways that people that need help and support can get? Because a lot of people don't even know these organizations exist. Um. What would you recommend for people that get to this point in the interview and go, oh, my God, she's talking about me? Um, where can they go? First of all, go to my website, rlspring.net, for all types of resources. Great. A book that I would use as a workbook is getting a book called Reinventing Your Life, The Breakthrough Program to End Negative Behavior and Feel Great Again by Jeffrey E. Young, Ph.D., and Janet S. Klosko, Ph.D., this can be used as a workbook. This is about the schema therapy I talked about. Schemas are a, an, a word for a life trap. They're also a word for what you talked about in shamanic work. Um, also, um, they're just child parts. And this really helps you um, understand what happened to you psychologically from the trauma and begin to Uncover your healthy self so that you can begin anew again. Uh, so 
Um, I would recommend that. I would recommend getting a schema therapist. Um, I found it extremely helpful. You can go on psychology today and look for them. Um, so that's some of the things I would recommend. Yeah. And you've got your, your website with a lot of resources. Now, if I remember right, you said you are actively seeing clients. Are you taking people on to coach yourself? Yes, I am. How do people reach you? They can reach me uh, through my website, arielspring.net. Okay, great. And then one of the things that I, you know, that was a feature, like a pivotal point in your story was your moment of asking Jesus for help. And through my career as a therapist, and even in my own life, I have, I remember as a child not wanting to live anymore. I was 12 and I just like, I just like reached my wits end. My brother ended up committing suicide, in fact. But I'm I so remember, sorry. well, you know, it's part of life. It took me a while to heal. It was pretty intense. Um, yes. But I remember that there was points in my life, even as a child, that I just stopped in the middle of the field or out in the woods when I was working and just would be angry and crying. And I would just start talking to God and, and, and it helped me through it. So how, how important do you think it is to have some sort of a higher power to connect with, to help pull us through these challenging for you? It was Jesus for somebody else. It could be any number of higher powers. I mean, in our right. Christian culture, Jesus is a popular one, but it, it doesn't need to be Jesus. But what do you think it is about having this connection to something beyond yourself or bigger than yourself that helps pe pull people through these things? I think it's vitally pivotal. It was in my story because I used to have the self-talk that I was just a dot. I mean, I was hearing this voice in my head say, you're just a dot. In the universe, what significance do you have? And it wasn't until, like you mentioned, the ego is was trying to protect me, but it had gotten so out of proportion that I couldn't, and my heart had got so gotten so blocked off that I couldn't humble myself to ask a higher power for help. And I used Jesus because that was instilled in me with my granny, who was my mother's mother. But through my healing journey, I've sought out many spiritual practices, Buddhism. I did chanting, other deities. Um, that's just where I am now, but I wasn't always there. And so I was always going to a higher power from that one day that I mentioned in the tiny studio where I submitted my will to a higher power. It was, it was pivotal for me to start my healing journey. And I believe it can be for you too. I think so too. And I think it doesn't need to be something mysterious or, um, nefarious or invisible or mystical. Um, I think for a lot of people, just trusting in nature, you know, in mother nature. I do that too. You know, just going for a walk in the woods and sitting with trees and 
I would tell people that are in a lot of pain that one of the most healing things you can do is get next, next to any body of running water, like a creek or a river or the ocean. When I went through my, my divorce to my first wife, I, I developed this deep need to be next to the ocean. So the first thing I did was bought myself or rented an apartment right on the beach where I could look out the window and see the ocean and listen to the sound of the waves at night. I knew intuitively, no, I didn't think about it. I just knew I had to get near the ocean. It was very interesting too, because when my first wife and son would come to visit me, they loved to come visit me at my apartment. I realized they also needed the ocean. And so oh. we would, yeah, we would have great times talking to each other and connecting. And I think the ocean was helping us to heal. And in Native American Indian culture, you know, the rattles are actually a symbol for the sound of water and rain. So when you're rattling, you're actually creating a metaphorical experience of being rained on to wash the pain away. So oh, even, wow. even getting a pair of rattles and just rattling and chanting whatever wants to come out of you. Um, and even having a chant like I, I've given people the chant, I am happy, I am healthy, I am whole. I take my love wherever I go. I am happy, I'm healthy, I'm whole. I take my love wherever I go. And so my point is you can actually create connection to a deity. We all know that we're a product of nature and nature produces life. So we don't have to have some, you see, the, the problem is for a lot of people, if they don't believe in what they're reaching to as a higher power, then they're just sort of adding another layer of, of, confusion to themselves or or yeah. um, insecurity I can see that and I, I want to add that part of my healing was walks in the forest in the Pacific Northwest many times a week hugging trees getting the energy from the trees being in the forest was so so healing I would take my little poodle who the breeder said you can't take her out of the house. <laughs> she loved to walk in nature. And now guess where I live? I live right on the ocean. So again, you know, either if you can be near a forest or be near a body of water, this is also vitally important to, um, to receive that healing energy from, from nature, which is part of God. Yes. We, we can also make our own deity. For example, we can take the mothering principle and we can then know that the, the concept of the mother exists in the psyche of ourselves. So we can, yes, we can call that divine mother or great mother mm -hmm. or divine father or great father. So point is we can actually connect to whatever gives us a sense of comfort. So if we could idealize the mother archetype and then begin to connect with the principle of the, the, the beautiful loving mother or the beautiful loving father and develop our own inner relationship with that. It's, it's surprising how supportive and healing it is because when you spend time in prayer talking to that person or that being all of which is god there's nothing but god here or god's not god you're actually able to express your pain 
to a personification of a being or a deity that is empathetic and compassionate and isn't going to harm you. So sometimes silence becomes a very powerful language of healing and you can express yourself, but know that that deity within you is there to receive you. One of the things that you said, which I think is very important because it's come up many times in my work as a therapist with people that said exactly that. I, why, why do I matter? You know, especially people that have suicidal tendencies and very commonly they say things like I, I'm nothing. I'm insignificant. The universe, no one's going to miss me when I'm gone. Right. And, and sometimes they use that analogy too, that I feel just like a dot or a point. So it, when you said that, it reminded me of something that I share with them. I say, do you believe in God? And if they say no, I say, well, let me ask you a question from a scientific perspective. How much energy would it take to create and maintain a universe? Well, that's a good one. Well, most people say, well, God, you know, probably an infinite amount. And then those that do understand what God is, I already have a place to start. So I say to them, imagine that we could blow up a balloon that has as much power, as much energy, as much love, and as much intelligence as God. Can you visualize that? I say, yes, they can. Okay. Mm -hmm. I say, no, I want you to take that concept of you as a point. I'm going to hand you an imaginary needle, which has got one point on it. I want you to tell me what's going to happen when that needle hits that balloon. And they all say it's going to explode. And I say, okay, that's how much power there is in the point that you are calling yourself because any point in God has infinite power, infinite love, and infinite potential. And even if you don't believe God, it's true even from a scientific perspective. So remember that that's powerful. That point is enough to allow so much love and energy to flow into you that if you just connect to that point and know that the entire universe invested itself in the creation of you as a unique novel point of its own expression, then you are in the perfect place to begin to realize that what you grow that point to be is completely up to you. And that is your free will. And in fact, Big Bang Theory says that the whole, whole universe emerged from a point. So we can go right back to there and say, mm -hmm. if the universe can come out of a point, then so can I. And so I think yeah. the point is a very important point, but it's important to understand that the point that we are is access to and is inspired by and fulfilled by the power that creates everything that exists. The infinite, yeah. The infinite, yes. Yeah. That's brilliant. Ariel, as a nutritionist and life coach, what are some tips you can offer anyone listening that they can do without seeing a professional therapist that are essential as a component to their own healing? In other words, they don't have the money or maybe they're too afraid. What are some things that they can start doing right now that cost nothing? Aside from, you know, loving themselves and the things that we've talked about. Um, you know, obviously there's a nutritional component to this. So I, I'm going to let you just take it where you want to go. Okay. Uh, breathing deeply daily. Very good. That won't cost a thing. 
And like you mentioned earlier, Paul, many trauma survivors, they're breathing right up here. Yes. I still have to work on that, breathing from the diaphragm. So nowadays it's so nice because you have YouTube. You know, you can even just get, if you have Instagram, people are putting, you know, videos out, uh, you know, of workouts, meditations to help you because you might get not very inspired by, by me just saying breathe deeply. But these videos and things can really help you, you know, get into your body. So you, I've spent a lot of years out of my body. We want to get in our bodies, breathing deeply and occupying our space because we've been like this. And guess what? Our space is this big. Yeah. We're only occupying this much of it. And so that's the holistic aspect there. Now, nutritionally, I do a ton of stuff. The top ones are the adrenals. They've got to be supported. Yeah. The cortisol has got to be regulated. So why is that important? So that you can go to sleep at the appropriate time, you know, and get your rhythm going in the right direction. Many trauma survivors are staying up all night and, and sleeping in the day if they don't have a job or something. Yes. And that is very damaging because it's just it's unproductive it's not natural it, it destroys your recovery cycle so you're always in a state of debt which is stress thank you yes so, drinking water too which you and i have both been doing during yeah. this incredible podcast we've been hydrating you know and again don't just drink tap water i'm sorry to say it's no good anywhere but you can get a decent filter or something, you know, if you don't have the means to order Fiji like I have today or, you know, get a whole home system, that's okay. Just do the best you can to filter your water. Drink your water daily. It's, it's vitally important. Regulate your cortisol. Support those poor little adrenal glands that are so exhausted. They need help with adaptogens. So look that word up. You'll see what it means. Maybe you'll even need a glandular. I go off and on adrenal glandular, even though I don't want to take animal products. But when my adrenals need help and I'm in severe stress, I will take a quality glandular adrenal to help my adrenal glands function. Yeah, ashwagandha is a very readily available adaptogen that's quite effective. Yes, yes. And you got to try them out for your body because what works for me or for you may not work for some of our listeners today. Sleeping is probably the most important. <laughs> Rhodiola is another good adaptogen. Yep. Sleep is so important. I mean... I have regulated my sleep till I sleep seven and eight hours without waking up. That's great. That never happened for a very long time. You know, I would go to sleep, then my uh, cortisol would wake me up. And there's nothing worse than being up in the middle of the night for two or three hours. 
So your sleep, your, your, now what I recommend too, Paul is organic food. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very adamant about putting chemicals in our bodies because there are so many chemicals that are forced upon us because of the environment that we live in. Uh, so we don't want to be adding to our liver. That's another thing. Get a good liver support so you can help your liver function because it has to deal with so many toxins on a daily basis. Keeping enough fiber in your diet and eating artichoke. Artichoke's very supportive of the liver, and so is milk thistle. There's a lot of great natural yes. organic liver supports and foods you can eat. If you just look up on the internet, foods for liver support, you'll find lots of information. You can Food is medicine. It is, right. It, so, it is, as so long as it's clean. <laughs> as long as it's clean. Yeah. So I know you're going to maybe save a little bit if, if you don't buy organic, but I promise you, you're not going to save anything in the long run. Yeah. A lot of these things, by the way, if you haven't, uh, listeners, if you haven't read my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, all these things are in there and it tells you everything from what oils to use, what oils do well at what temperature, uh, how to identify where the right macronutrient proportions uh fats, proteins, and carbohydrates are for your body's needs and pretty much everything you need to take care of yourself to minimize unnecessary stress, sleep cycles, all of that. It's a phenomenal book. Yes. Thank you. Um, so yeah. Okay. Well, th those are all very good tips. One tip I'll share, Ariel, just because we're on it and it's important. I developed a technique called centering breathing where you take a piece of kite string and you just tie it around your waist at your belly button level. You set your phone or your watch to beep every hour on the hour. And when you put the string on, you just tie it, not tight, but just tight enough that it's touching your skin. If women have curvy hips, then they might have to use a little piece of tape on each side, like uh, athletic tape, just to keep it from rising up. But you want it to sit right at the belly button level. Okay. Every single hour, what you do is you inhale and you use the string to cue you to expand your belly so you're breathing diaphragmatically. And your goal is with each breath to try to stretch the string and make it tight so you have a biofeedback mechanism. And as you inhale, you visualize yourself like a tree growing to the sun. And as you exhale, you visualize your growing roots through your feet down into the earth to support you. So you can turn that into a mantra as you're inhaling. You're saying, I reach for the sun and see yourself expanding and growing to the sun. And then as you exhale, I sink roots deep into Mother Earth. And as you're exhaling, visualize your breathing, all your stress and all your pain and give it to Mother Earth. She'll convert it and use it as healing and growth energy. And I have had so many people tell me that that one exercise, so you Every hour you do 12 centering breaths and that starts okay. retraining you how to breathe diaphragmatically, but it also psychologically conditions you to the growth potential and to the rooting potential because we need to root to stabilize and we need to grow to heal. And I also see two other uh, advantages of it. Cleansing breath, cleansing breath, and also occupying your entire space. Yes, you got to be the tree. Yeah. And the roots. 
I'm going right out and getting some kite string. <laughs> it's very, very effective. Once a person does it anywhere from two weeks to a couple of months, they always say to me, well, when do I, when can I take the string off? I say, when you go to do your centering breaths, if you find that you're already breathing diaphragmatically and that you're not having anxiety attacks or headaches or uh, numbing and tingling in your ring finger and little finger, jaw pain, MJ, yeah. yeah, or tightness in the chest or digestive stress. Um, or excess muscle tension, all of which are indicators of too much sympathetic uh, nervous system tone, which is called sympathetic tone, then you're probably ready to go ahead and take it off. But then just do your centering breaths every hour for another month or so without the string just to keep the practice up and then decide from there if you need them or not. And once you're at that point, just use them when you're feeling stressed and it'll re-anchor you quite quickly. So that's a little technique I developed because I found, especially women, because we've got all this fashionista type culture where every, women are always sucking their bellies in. Um, they needed something to give them feedback so they knew they were expanding their belly. And remember the first two thirds of a breath, if you put one hand over your belly button and the other hand on your chest, the first two thirds of the breath should always come from belly expansion. Only the last third of the breath should be their chest movement. A lot of people with these tra traumatic histories initiate the breath from the chest and they don't expand the belly at all, which leads to hyperventilation, which over-oxygenates your blood, which excites the sympathetic nervous system, represses the parasympathetic system, and it stimulates your adrenal gland. So it keeps you in a fight or flight reaction. And when you do that, when you breathe too fast, you outgas too much CO2. And the CO2 needs to be retained. So another technique is to breathe as slowly as you can, breathing in through your mouth or your nose and out through your mouth or nose. Um, the Botinko method is a great method for calming. So you just practice breathing as slow as you can, taking a deep, deep breath, hold it at the top till you feel like you need to breathe out, then just Resist the urge to let it out fast and let it out real slow and build yourself up from a few breaths to a few minutes. And it has what that does is it causes your body to retain CO2, which excites the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the digest, metabolize, rest, and regenerate nervous system. Yeah. And that also is important anytime you're in a situation where you're learning something, such as a new job or you have to study software or updates or manuals. Because if you got too much adrenaline and cortisol, it forces you into your left brain and it stops you from learning because you're in a fight or flight mode. It's dangerous to learn something when you're running for your life. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Well, you know, I just want to share a little bit that I know will help people because I don't want people waiting to come see a therapist to kind of learn these things when you can do them cheaply right. and easily on your own. Right. Ariel, is there... We, we've talked about your website. We know that you're a coach. You also have, uh, you've also done training as a holistic nutritionist, which we hadn't mentioned, which was becoming quite obvious as you were speaking. So you're a professional life coach and a holistic nutritionist, which is a beautiful package. You obviously have a very lot of experience at dealing with this. You know how to write an exit plan. So you're a perfect coach for people. So maybe just once again, say where, what your website is, arielspring.net. Yes, it's 
Ariel, A-R-I-E-L-L-E, spring, one, dot net. And that's Great. where you can contact me. And I'm on Instagram, Ariel Spring Author. I'm on Facebook, When Birds Sing, and or Ariel Spring. And then, of course, you can find my book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart online. And it's called When Birds Sing, My Journey from Trauma to Triumph. Awesome. Now, I got one last question for you. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow and you could use this chance to share a message with the people of the world, having lived through what you've lived through and seeing the world as it is today, what would your message be? I hope this doesn't sound cliche, but my message would be use your pain to help others. Amen. But there's a caveat. Only when you've done a significant amount of your own healing work. Yes. That's really important. Yes. Otherwise, your pain might not help people. It might traumatize them. <laughs> yeah, yes. And the unhealed healer is not who we need out trying to heal people. Now, are you going to be... We're always healing. We're always on our healing journey until we depart from this earth. So there is that also. That's why I say do a significant amount. Yes. Before you decide you want to help others. But use your pain to help others because this will catapult you to new heights of being. I think, too, when your own pain has become a source of love and understanding, and it naturally comes out of you because you can recognize yourself and other people, then you know that you have love and understanding to give. And also when you can hold, when you've done enough healing where you can hold the space for others. Yes. Because if you can't hold that traumatic space that they're in. You just get lost together. Yeah. It's going to be damaging for you and for them. Yes. Well, what a fantastic journey. I mean, obviously, it's been a, a painful journey for you, and, and we appreciate that a lot of people are on this painful journey. I know that I've learned more from my pain by about a million times than I have the birthday parties and the good times, so I don't think it's mature to wish for a life without pain, but I think it is mature and wise to be aware that we can make it through the pain. And as long as we can recognize the pain as an opportunity to learn and to grow, then we can use it as a vehicle for um, cultivating more awareness, more love and, and more empathy and compassion for other people. And I think if we didn't have pain, we'd all just be like people partying all day long. We would never grow. I mean, how many birthday parties can you go to before you're just begging for a hard workout or, somebody to challenge you, you know, so. And I'd like to, I'd like to add, Paul, that writing this, my story. Yes. Was one of the hardest things I ever did through all the pain I went through was piecing together the shattered parts of my life, you know, even getting it in a chronological order that I could remember. And so I would recommend that also as my parting words today is write your story, keep a journal, 
Yes. So that it'll be easier for you. I didn't journal, so I had to take it all from here. <laughs> and that was a lot harder. But if you journal, you'd be amazed when you write your story, how much healing it will provide you. Yes, I think I use that all the time in my work as a therapist because it's something that we're all capable of doing. We spend our whole life in school and writing and, you know, it, it's natural, but it's amazing what happens when you take the pain and let it flow through the pen under the paper because it actually is like taking pressure out of an overpressurized tire or uh, something that's about to blow, but just somehow moving it out of us. And the other thing, too, is it allows us to look at our story and realize that we don't have to keep living that story. We can change that story. We've always got the power to be the director and the actor of our own um, story. Yeah. And I do want to say that when I met my current therapist and I told him I was writing the book, he said, I certainly don't want to tell you what to do. But what I suggest is that you just hold off till you've done some work with me. I ended up rewriting the book because I was in such a different place after a couple years of the therapy I mentioned that my writing just was totally different. Great. So there's that piece too. Don't forget to do your healing work when you're writing your story because You'll, you'll be able to see your creativity come out in a way that it wouldn't when you didn't do the healing. Yes. Very good. Fantastic journey we've been on. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I really, when I read Ariel's book and, and her story, I thought there's a lot of people with PTSD and I get people emailing me all the time wanting to talk about PTSD and their journey. But the thing that was really unique Ariel, is that you healed yourself. You took it upon yourself. You walked the trail of tears. You made it through the fire. And you really created a book that allows other people to see how bad it can be, but also what's possible. And you did the work to become a nutritionist and a life coach. And for me, that was even more special because I knew if, if one thing could come out of this podcast, there would now be somebody that they could go to that they know understands them and get help from, from someone that is the wounded healer and has the knowledge of how to do this and how to take it in bite-sized steps and how to put things into context, how to love yourself and, and all the other things that a, a wise woman like you can offer. So thank you very much, Ariel, for making your journey and sharing it with everybody else. I'm really proud of you. Thank you so much, Paul, for this opportunity to be on this incredible interview with you today. Thank you. And thank you to my sponsors for all your amazing products and sustainable practices and giving us an opportunity to have things that help us live better and have more energy and be cleaner and more vital inside. Everything that my sponsors make is top shelf or I wouldn't even be involved in it. And thank you guys for being on this journey with me and RAL today and, and for having the courage to live and love fully and make the world a better place each day. I look forward to sharing something more and exciting with you next Tuesday. Lots of love. Aho, great spirit. See you soon.
Bye. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Ariel Spring. You can find Ariel and her book, When Birds Sing, online at arielspring.net. That's A-R-I-E-L-L-E-S-P-R-I-N-G dot net. Or you can follow her on Instagram at Ariel Spring Author or on Facebook at Ariel Spring and at When Birds Sing. Ariel is offering Paul's listeners $25 discount on your first coaching session or package with her. You can contact her through her website, arielspring.net forward slash contact. You can find Paul on Instagram and TikTok at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors by Optimizers, Paleo Valley, and Organifi. Please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discounts for listeners. The links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.